Ladies and gentlemen, the moment you've all been waiting for, Agent Smith, starring Agent Smith. Hello? What's up, dude? How are you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you? Well, a little bit annoyed at Zencaster, but aside from that, life is pretty good. Oh, well, you know, that's the internet for you. Yep. Stuff doesn't always work perfectly. Well, maybe we'll fix it later. Yep. We know a guy who is a wizard with all those things. It's just oh, some. There you go. Sometimes you have a magical problem when your wizard is asleep. <laughs> <laughs> you just got to do it the old-fashioned way, using an actual Discord call. Say, Louis. Yeah. So it's been a couple weeks. I had a family visit thing that came up last week, and then uh, the week before that was I think coming back from BlizzCon with the sickness. But I'm feeling pretty good now. I feel like I'm mostly over the convention cold. I, uh, I'm i inside a lot of the year, and then you go to a place with tens of thousands <laughs> of people, and it's basically just getting all caught up on the germs and stuff that's been going around that I missed because oh, yeah. I was inside. But now I'm shaking everybody's hand to make sure I don't get left behind. Yeah, I can definitely sympathize. That happened to me on my trip earlier this year. Hmm. Gotta build up that immunity, Neuro. Yep. <clears throat> oh, I did see you posted a podcast episode. Oh, yeah. I got the introduction up for the Rio 3D series. Mm-hmm. Finally. Yeah, I'll try to release that pretty quickly here. I've already got all the stuff written. I just need to record it. So it shouldn't be too much of a problem at this point. We'll see. <laughs> nice. But at least the introduction is out. Are you cool if I link that in the chat? Ah, uh, yeah, if you like. Cool. John TX, 1848, following on Twitter. Your Twitter account is pretty active, and one of the <clears throat> nice things about that that I would recommend is you tend to go through a lot of world news, and many people have that question of, there's so much news around. How do I find the stuff that actually addresses what's going on and isn't just in that clickbait category of trying to drum up people's emotions and things like that? So I see a lot of BBC links here. Uh, we have discussed in the past some different news sources that you tend to go through the most, but the reminder that we give people with that is every news source has a bias. You just need to understand what the bias is so you can factor that in when you're interpreting the information for yourself mm -hmm. yep i always approach news gathering and information gathering with a skeptical mind so long as you do that you should be okay so how have the past couple of weeks been i'm sure there's plenty of stuff going on <clears throat> we ended our last session with kind of a rapid fire of a bunch of different protests <laughs> and things that have been developing recently. So if that trend yeah. continues, there's probably a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of new ones, really. Uh, but there, I do have more details about some of those, giving more context and uh, you know, giving just more pertinent uh, information there. So we'll, we can get into that depending on time, but 
Is there any particular thing that caught your eye? Mm, the Iraq protests, I think, uh, I've seen come up multiple times, and I'm not uh, super certain about what they're trying to have changed and what the status of that is. I do know that it's been on the more violent side compared to many other protests that have been going on recently. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of that violence is uh, the parties themselves rather than the government, per se, although the government and police forces definitely have been uh, culpable in that. Yeah, with Iraq, uh, the protests broke out roughly over the past couple of weeks, and uh, those protests kind of are part of a long-running series of protests that have been happening off and on for the past couple of years. And it stems from a general dissatisfaction with the quality of public services in Iraq. Iraq has a political system that is dominated by patronage networks uh, that are comprised of the different political parties in Iraq. And Iraq has a lot of political parties. It's not hard to start. It's not hard to start up a party. Uh, generally, they center around uh, powerful local uh, figureheads, local political figures. And they'll make a local party, and then they'll make an alliance with a larger party, and then there's a, and the result is a large sort of coalition uh, that comprises a new patronage network that's sufficiently large to become one of the major ruling coalitions. Uh, that, in general, is kind of how things have worked in Iraq since uh, the Iraq War, uh, since Iraq was democratized. And there are kind of different reasons for that. I mean, part of it is uh, there's a sectarian bent to Iraq's politics that leads people to kind of vote for their identity rather than for uh, specific policies. And so that kind of gives uh, the parties they vote for discretion and how to kind of run things, what specific policies to use. And generally, uh, they cannibalize public services to try to generate maximum patronage opportunities. Uh, you don't need to run a given department of government to the best of your ability and get the best people in. You need to run it such that you can have the maximum number of public sector jobs that you can hand out to people who supported you. And to say nothing of, you know, embezzlement, you know, general corruption, getting money, that kind of thing. So that's more the priority uh, amongst major political actors in Iraq. And the result, unsurprisingly, is that uh, public, the, public, the provision of public services is very poor uh, because, again, public services have not really been sufficiently professionalized. Uh, rather, they've, they've been co-opted by these uh, patronage networks. So people broadly, uh, not just any one particular group like the Sunnis or Shias, etc., just in general, the broader population, especially young people who generally don't benefit nearly as much from these patronage networks, uh, they've been very upset about that, you know, the fact that the government is so corrupt and inefficient. And periodically over the past few years, they've protested uh, pretty significantly. It kind of got curtailed by the war against the Islamic State, because obviously that kind of dominated attention in the country for a couple years uh, through the mid-decade or so, I guess. Uh, but now that the Islamic State has been, if not completely defeated, at least sufficiently defeated for political attention to be put elsewhere, uh, the public has started to turn back to anti-corruption and trying to protest for uh, better governance. 
And so the latest iteration in that is the protests that have been happening over the past few weeks. Uh, the latest disappointment, and we've talked about this a little bit before, uh, a while back, uh, in the last uh, election in Iraq, uh, the victorious political uh, coalitions, I should say, it's, I, I don't want to say parties quite, because there's more than, more than a few, uh, but the victorious coalition was a kind of grand coalition between uh, the PMU parties, roughly speaking. Those are sort of the popular mobilization units, the militias, if you like, Shia militias that were mobilized during the war with Islamic State. They tend to align a little more with Iran, uh, although they do have links with... Uh, they're, not, they're not as in bed with Iran as some of the other establishment Shia political parties, but uh, they've taken the forefront since they've become the big vote-getter for that particular block. So they made a kind of unity government with uh, an anti-corruption coalition uh, that was led by a guy some of you older folks may remember, a guy named Muqtada al-Sadr, who's a Shia nationalist, uh, who was responsible for leading one of the more virulent anti-American militias during the Iraq War. Uh, he's always painted himself as a nationalist, and he has ties to Iran, but he downplayed those uh, over the past 10-some years, roughly. Towards the end of the Iraq War, he started to distance himself a little more. And at this point, he's more or less the de facto head of this uh, anti-corruption coalition of parties. So a unity government was, in effect, made between these two grand coalitions, and uh, the result was a technocratic government. That was one of the big demands of the anti-corruption coalition. Uh, they wanted to try to professionalize government by having technocrats instead of political appointees. Um, so there was some hope that there would be substantive reform and that things would get better, but uh, things aren't getting better fast enough uh, to satisfy a lot of the young people in Iraq. Iraq has very high youth unemployment, and there's a suspicion really at this point that uh, a lot of the establishment political actors are not in the least bit interested and allowing real reform. So the technocrats that were appointed have been trying, but it doesn't seem like they're, they've been able to really get a lot of traction for their various policy changes. So the result then is disenchantment and protests. So roughly, and that is very, that's a very generic description, but roughly that's how we got where we are in Iraq, in our, in Iraq right now. So what's been happening uh, more recently then, uh, in terms of the government's response to the protests, uh, they have given concessions. Uh, I got a list of them here. Uh, for one, they what I, they announced that they were going to reshuffle the cabinet uh, to the protesters. That kind of feels like you know rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, but nominally that is technically a concession they offered. Uh, they also announced lower salaries for quote-unquote high-ranking officials, which isn't going to matter since they make most of their money from corruption anyway, so that's another token concession. Uh, the government also promised $66 million to support the unemployed. Uh, that's a nice gesture, but the Iraqi government gets billions of dollars in revenue from oil royalties, so they could do more, and it's not really clear if any of that money will actually go to the people it's meant to help. Again, uh, corruption means that a lot of money that goes into the government doesn't come out the way it's supposed to. That is one of the basic uh, criticisms that protesters have been making. So they're probably not going to they're probably not going to trust this uh, promise either. In turn, uh, they also promised uh, that is to say, the government promised 
training programs for youths. Um, that's a nice concession, but everybody and their mother around the world in developed and developing economies alike has talked about training programs for the unemployed and in particular unemployed youth. And it's a pretty mixed bag in terms of its ability to deliver. So it looks nice on paper, but in terms of the track record, it doesn't really work that great. You know, there really need to be broader, a broader set of reforms if you really want to address a problem like youth unemployment. Uh, and the final concession here I have listed is that the government promised to build 100,000 homes in poor areas. Uh, obviously, Iraq has a lot of poor people, and it's very difficult for them to get housing. So uh, public subsidized housing would be a help to them. So that could be a substantive concession if the government actually does it. But again, uh, the whole crux of the protest is that people don't trust the government to do anything. Uh, so it's not really clear if this promise has a lot of credibility either any more than the others. So in general, you can see the pattern. Uh, there's just not a lot of trust in the government's ability uh, to deliver on promises or to run the government in an efficient or even just run it at all uh, in a way that isn't so corrupt that it becomes uh, ineffective and dysfunctional. So that these concessions basically have not stemmed the protests. They've continued. And the protesters, for their part, have been demanding that Prime Minister Mahdi, uh, the technocratic prime minister that came out of those coalition talks I mentioned, uh, they're demanding that he resign. And he has actually agreed to resign if a replacement can be agreed. And that's a big if, because in Iraqi politics, uh, negotiations for who heads the government can be somewhat prolonged. I think Iraq broke the record at one point for the longest time for a country to go without a government because uh, negotiations after an indecisive election uh, resulted in endless negotiation and renegotiation between vested parties, uh, well, vested interests in who should head that government and how power should be distributed. Again, in a patronage network, uh, not a patronage, in a patronage, in a political system defined by patronage and corruption uh, like that in Iraq, uh, negotiations like that are very important because they, they now... Uh, spoils systems basically uh, are allocated. You know, whoever, given departments of the government have various values depending on how much opportunities they provide for corruption and patronage. And so uh, given how many political parties there are in these coalitions as well, that also complicates things. So there's a lot to talk about. And if the election is sufficiently indecisive, uh, it can create a significant amount of uh, gridlock, basically, in those negotiations. Okay, so protests have continued. Um, Prime Minister says he'll step down if a replacement can be agreed, but that'll probably take a while. Uh, Muqtada al-Sadr and Ameri, I already told you who Sadr was, but Ameri is sort of the, the head of that PMU-led coalition that I mentioned. So he's more the Iranian-aligned candidate, Sadr being, again, the nationalist. Uh, Sadr and Amari are now saying that they'll ho hold a vote of no confidence. Um, that was a week or two ago, so I don't know if they ever actually did that. Uh, I need to kind of uh, brush up on what's been happening more recently. But that was the promise they made uh, a few weeks ago, that they would move ahead with a vote of no confidence and circumvent uh, Mahdi entirely. So uh, rather than agreeing to find somebody to replace him and facilitate his resignation, they're basically forcing his hand, or at least they said they would. Uh, they're also demanding new elections uh, so that a new government can be formed that has popular support. 
And the most recent development, something I did read uh, the other day, is that Al-Sistani has come out in support of the protesters. Uh, if you've been watching Iraq for a while, you know who that is right away. But for those of you who don't, Al-Sistani is the uh, highest ranking religious figure in Iraq. Um, Islam doesn't really have a, an organized institution like, say, the Catholic Church. So there's not like a specific hierarchy. But in Shia Islam, they do have a, a little more structure like that. And I, I think uh, Al-Sistani is like an Ayatollah or something, you know, very, very high ranking religious figure. And he's generally recognized as being the leading religious authority uh, in Iraq, at least in Shi'i Iraq, but they're the majority anyway. He's not generally very political, but he does weigh in during times of crisis or what have you. For example, during the whole uh, Islamic State thing, I think he was one of the voices that came out in favor of uh, the government mobilizing militias uh, to defend religious sites and uh, help fight the Islamic State. So he's been relatively quiet, but then recently, now with the protests, he's come out in favor of them. And that's been a big boost for them politically, since his voice really carries a lot of weight in Iraqi politics and society writ large. So we'll see if that really kind of uh, energizes them and kind of facilitates uh, more pressure on the government that could be operationalized into actual reform. Probably not, <laughs> but yeah, hope springs eternal. Uh, so let's see here. Politics. Yeah, so I talked about how it's sectarian, uh, nationalists and pro-Iranians. So in general, in Iraqi politics, uh, the Shia political groups are the most powerful. Uh, but there's kind of a divide in the Shia community between those who are maybe, I guess, a little older and a little more inclined towards patronage politics, who want the government to just kind of give them some things. Uh, they kind of see that as being the role of uh, a democratic government. For those people, they generally lean more towards Iranian-aligned parties, um, not just the PMU, but also uh, what they it used to be called the Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution in Iraq, but they've changed their name a couple times. That used to be the big pro-Iranian group in Iraq. Uh, they've lost a little bit of thunder, but they're they're still one of the big movers and shakers over there. So they've got they've still got a number of parties like that, but there's also people who in the Shia community who vote more nationalists. They vote for parties that are not aligned with Iran, um, not really aligned with America or anybody else, just more explicitly nationalist. And generally, these parties are more supported by the youth, I think. They tend to focus a little more on anti-corruption. Uh, so that's the Shia groups. Um, the Sunni population in Iraq uh, used to vote for Sunni nationalists. Um, the big Sunni bloc... Well, maybe like 10 years ago during the big disputed election, uh, they actually voted for a coalition that was led by a Shia guy. And uh, it didn't really matter to them because the important thing for them was that, one, he was a nationalist, two, that he was secular, and three, that he was not aligned with Iran. Sunni Arabs in Iraq are particularly critical of uh, Iran. Uh, keep in mind that the Sunni population of Arabs in Iraq are basically the ones who have run Iraq for most of the past, well, at least the past hundred years or so, if not even further back than that. They live in the most urban, developed parts of Iraq in the center of the country, you know, Baghdad, etc. Uh, what they used to call the Sunni Triangle during the Iraq War. Uh, sort of that area was the uh, center of Iraq's political economy. Uh, it didn't hurt that Saddam Hussein was from there, and you know, of course, if you're a dictator, you rely on people you trust. 
And in general, that means relying on friends and family who usually come from very specific geographic areas. So that also helped uh, supercharge the political influence of these regions here. So these people are not as religiously inclined, and they're also very skeptical of Iran in particular, because they obviously were in charge when Iraq was fighting the Iran-Iraq war and trying to, fend, trying to fend off Iranian influence. So for them, uh, a nationalist candidate is key and one that is willing uh, to cater to Sunni issues. Uh, for an example of a Sunni issue uh, that's important to that community, one is a, a fair, what they would consider a fair distribution of oil revenue. Iraq makes a lot of oil, but almost all of it is located in the north of the country in Kurdish areas and in the far south in Shia areas. The Sunni middle of Iraq doesn't really have any oil of its own. And that's a problem because what happened after the Iraq war, well, during the Iraq war, during democratization, uh, the different subregions of Iraq pushed for local control of oil. So the specific Shia areas that had oil wanted that oil revenue for themselves, and the Kurdish areas wanted their oil revenue for themselves. So the Sunni middle of Iraq kind of got denied that. So one of the big things that Sunni voters look for is somebody who's willing to push for, uh, again, an equitable distribution of oil revenue across the country evenly and not just in uh, local areas where the oil itself is located. They didn't win. <laughs> they lost that election. And uh, that was actually one of the reasons that the Sunni Arabs in Iraq started protesting back in 2014. And uh, they were very critical of the government. They always kind of had been there. You know, there was a reason that the Sunni parts of Iraq were the center of the insurgency during the Iraq war. You know, they felt like they were really being targeted by the new government, which was dominated by Shias, and they felt like they were being discriminated against. And so, and of course, a lot of them had ties to the old Hussein regime as well. You know, so there was a lot of desire to kind of fight back and try to, you know, fend off uh, an American invader. They still saw the Americans as invaders broadly in the Sunni community and uh, also what they perceived to be uh, American or Iranian allies, depending on one's perspective, amongst the Shia political parties that were running Iraq after the war. So, let's see, that being the case, uh, to go back to 2014, the Sunnis started protesting, upset about the government. They're not really as involved in the insurgency as they had been. That had kind of died down after the surge back in 2008, I think it was thereabouts. This is when the United States flooded Iraq, basically, with as many troops as it could muster to try to control the violence, and it more or less succeeded um, for various reasons. It also helped that there was a schism within the insurgency between the uh, group that would become Islamic State, actually. It was called then Al-Qaeda in Iraq. There was a schism between Al-Qaeda in Iraq and the nationalist wing of the insurgency. And the nationalists and the insurgency, or the insurgency actually started working with the U.S. military uh, to go after the radical jihadis in the insurgency. And the result is, was a series of sort of local ceasefires between the nationalist insurgents and U.S. forces and the government, and in turn a focus then by all parties involved on the jihadists. And that served to more or less, not in the insurgency, but significantly reduce violence. Uh, but Sunnis were still really upset about disparities and how power was allocated, allocated in the government. They started protesting, and that was when a lot of people, well, some powerful people within the Sunni community started allying again with what had been al-Qaeda in Iraq. By 2014, it had already moved into Syria and evolved into uh, 
Islamic State or ISIS, I think, was the first iteration of it. Uh, what was that? Islamic State of something Al-Sham, I think. Al-Sham was the old Arabic name for Syria, if I remember correctly. Something to that effect. Well, anyway, they invaded Iraq uh, in conjunction with uh, local sympathizers who were, again, upset at the government. And that's actually the big reason that they were able to take so much ground so quickly. They actually had help from a lot of the locals whom previously had turned against them uh, late in 2008 and uh, late in the Iraq war. That didn't last long. They ended up alienating the local population again. It's kind of their thing. They're not very good at governance. Good at blowing things up, but not so much at governance. So they alienated people, lost support. And uh, they were never able to really push into Shia areas of Iraq. You know, the Iraqi army collapsed uh, in the face of the, the Islamic State's advance. But the principal reason they were able to move so quickly is because a lot of the people in the conquered territory were Sunni Arabs who didn't really like the government anyway. Uh, the Shia parts of Iraq were the parts of Iraq that did not trust the Islamic State for shit, for obvious reasons. And so... Uh, I don't think Islamic State ever moved into a Shia area. The locals there always uh, formed militias, basically, and did their best to keep them out. So there was never that much of a danger, as was kind of colored in 2014, that the Islamic State was going to take over all of Iraq. There was just too many people dead set opposed to them. You know, the Iraqi army just collapsed because it was poorly trained. It was led by political appointees. It had a lot... It had way more institutional problems that were more relevant factor there. Uh, but that doesn't mean the Islamic State was ever really predestined to take over Iraq. It's a tangent. And, you know, I get off on those. I'm, I'm sorry. <clears throat> no, um, I mean, it's, <clears throat> it's all kind of interrelated. Uh, yeah. Because some of these events, while not directly related to the protest, uh, things like ISIS were a result of what we talked about before, which is a huge power vacuum that opened up after the Iraq war. And I'm thinking about the the situation where you're just a a civilian in an area and your government isn't doing right by you and someone with a band of very enthusiastic individuals and a bunch of guns says we're going to overthrow them and give you something way better then generally speaking they're going to kind of nod their head and say oh yeah sure I mean whatever whatever is not this thing and you're not fully going to know how principled these people are or how effectively they can uh, exceed the previous government in any way until they get to that point. And by the time they get to that point, you can't do anything about it anyway. So it's almost yeah. kind of like changing of the winds to a point where the power exchange has been so frequent in that area. It's really lacking a lot of stability. Uh, one of the other themes that you mentioned was the identity of people as opposed to given factions over time so people voting more along the lines of their own demographics as opposed to on certain principles like voting uh, sunni or shia and then you talked about uh, secular movements as well like pan-arab nationalism which we discussed in the context of turkey primarily with ataturk and stuff so yeah it's a, a well nationalism yeah but in turkey is not arabic so that's not specifically pan-arab nationalist but yeah right. nationalist right, right right it's a similar sort of spirit though where the people yeah. are finding some identity that is separate from the established religion in that region and in this case it's um 
causing them to be skeptical of religious leadership because Iran is what is the official designation of how they run their government because I know they have Islamic Republic yeah is what they call it critics call it a theocracy but they call it an Islamic Republic so take your pick well one of them has a positive connotation and the other one has a negative connotation (laughs) (laughs) which connotation do you prefer they're not mutually exclusive, to be fair. Yeah. Well, to, I guess to kind of finish that earlier point, you know, the Sunnis in a, in Iraq sided with Islamic State because they just wanted to change, didn't trust the government, etc., then turned on them. And the result after the fact was basically an implosion. So there really hasn't been as much unrest in the Sunni parts of Iraq since the war. And I don't know if that's because, uh, you know, they were just devastated. So devastated over the course, those communities were devastated over the course of the war to the point that political participation is no longer a priority. I'm inclined to kind of think that, but I haven't really followed what's been happening in uh, Sunni Iraq since then to know specifically. But I just, I know that I haven't really heard much from them. So that makes me think that they're probably not going to be in a particularly restive mood for a while. A brutally destructive civil war will kind of do that to you. Knock the wind out of you for a while. So for now, the political center of Iraq is more in the Shia areas. That's more what's been in the news. But to talk about um, the genesis of sectarian politics in Iraq, that kind of came out of um, the Iraq war. Uh, After the U.S. invaded, uh, the U.S. set up an interim government. And there was kind of a sense that because Iraq was a diverse country with uh, different groups that had historically often been at loggerheads with each other, that it would be necessary to kind of institutionalize a sectarian element to uh, Iraq's politics. And so the U.S. helped after, you know, party, they, before there was an Iraqi government, there were elections for an Iraqi legislature. And so the parties that emerged from those elections were sort of gathered together and uh, they negotiated with U.S. advisors in the Iraqi constitution. And uh, one of the things, one of the informal norms that emerged from those negotiations is that uh, the three major groups of Iraq, you know, the Sunnis, the Shias, and the Kurds, uh, would basically divide institutions of government between them in order to ensure that everybody was represented. And so there was a Shia coalition of parties, a Sunni coalition of parties, and a Kurdish coalition of parties that would all sort of vaguely operate together uh, to ensure that the head of you know this department would be Sunni, that the president would be Kurdish, and that the prime minister would be Shia, etc. You know, roughly that's what it was. And the idea at the time was to try to prevent agitators from arguing that uh, one group or the other was dominating the government at the expense of another. But as it was, this ended up being a pretty ineffective means of dealing with the problem. Um, On the one hand, yes, everybody had representation from each of the major groups, but it also institutionalized the idea that your sect, your specific identity, uh, was more important than policy. And in turn, that helped facilitate the emergence of those patronage politics. And also the subsequent conflict, you know, the Iraqi Civil War, which sort of overlapped with the Iraq war uh, that also reinforced sectarian identities and sectarian politics since 
you know, if you're walking down the street and you're in imminent danger of being, you know, violently attacked or murdered by somebody from some ideologically charged party, uh, from a, someone of a comprised of people of a different identity than you, obviously that's an incentive for you in turn to align with a political party of people of your own identity so that you can have uh, some prote some protection. Even if you yourself may not be very sectarian, uh, you kind of have to do that if only for your own personal safety. That's generally how sectarian civil wars kind of play out. Most people are not actually interested in participating, but the minority of violent people who are kind of force your hand. That sounds like uh, prison culture to me. <laughs> if you don't join a gang, then you get picked on. So you may want to join a gang even if you don't agree with them just because it's a gang. Well, that's what happened in Yugoslavia. I mean, most people in Yugoslavia you know, as tense as the politics were, we're not interested in having a civil war. Uh, but radicals on, you know, all sides basically started the civil war and then dragged everybody else into it. Uh, you know, the state could not really referee uh, the conflict because the state was one of the parties. You know, the Serbian government, as it was, or at least the Serbian-dominated Yugoslav government, kind of spearheaded that. And then the Croatian regional government and then the Bosnian local government. And then, you know, just there wasn't anybody who could just be impartial. Everybody picked a side. And so the result was that you had to as well. There wasn't really anything you could do about it. Or you could just try to leave. But uh, that's more something that's not really an option for people who don't have as many resources to work with generally. Mm hmm. But yeah, that's what happened in Iraq. Uh, you know, once the Civil War kicked off, that just reinforced the sectarian politics. But they had their original genesis in the negotiation uh, of Iraq's constitution and its form of government and sort of the informal norms there. You know, that, that implicit assumption before the fact that Iraq's different ethnic groups and sectarian groups uh, would need to be represented in government and that those differences needed to be institutionalized that assumption itself and the corresponding uh, norms and institutions that were designed based on it inadvertently reinforced the assumption. It kind of, in a sense, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you like. It might have been better to just, just try to encourage non-sectarian politics so that there could be policy-based uh, parties emerging rather than sectarian-based policies. But at the same time, and to be fair, it may be that if you tried to do that, then there really would have been uh, people arguing that the different, you know, a person's given group was not being fairly represented and that the government was unfairly dominated by this group or the other group. And, you know, even, in, even as it was, with the uh, representation of sectarian groups institutionalized, it still ended up being largely a Shia Kurdish dominated government. So the Sunnis themselves were actually partially correct uh, that they were being disenfranchised, that they were kind of being cut out. It's true that there was a Sunni politician uh, who received, I don't remember what exactly it was. I think it was the speaker of the parliament or something was the official Sunni position. Uh, but that guy was not generally uh, the head of one of the major Sunni parties. Generally, it was a Sunni politician who was a part of one of the Shia or Kurdish coalitions. So they weren't really being represented, even though technically they had a Sunni guy in there. So even as it was, uh, Kurds and a, Kurd a coalition of Kurdish and Shia parties ended up, in effect, ex excluding the major Sunni parties uh, at, the ex at the expense of the Sunni-dominated areas of Iraq. 
So, you know, even as a solution for sectarian divisions, the uh, system that they ended up with was not particularly efficacious. And it may be that if they had not implemented that kind of system, it just would have been worse. You know, there would have been even more domination by Kurds and Shia parties and, you know, even less representation for Sunnis. So it's it's not really clear. It's an impossible counterfactual, but really. But, you know, in general, it's uh, I want to try to be fair to the people, <laughs> you know, negotiated that in the first place. It, it wasn't as simple as uh, designing a system that had no chance of uh, having sectarian divisions versus having one that would. The whole thing was probabilistic since it had never really been done before. You know, nobody had invaded Iraq before and tried to set up a democratic government after decades of domination by a Stalinist style totalitarian state. That was a pretty new idea. <laughs> so I can't really be too critical given how difficult the problem was. But uh, as it is, it was that period when they were negotiated and creating the Iraqi government that those sectarian politics really kind of emerged and and then over the course of subsequent events became further entrenched and it may be really difficult to undo those and undo that style of politics it's uh you know the whole thing has institutionalized patronage politics for one which would probably have happened anyway since that's patronage politics is super common in political systems where uh, people are desperate there's not a lot of economic development and where people, especially where people are not really familiar with democratic norms, you know, the idea of voting on policy instead of on who's giving you the most, who's giving you a job, who's giving you money, etc. You know, the idea of being a good citizen, that idea takes a lot of time uh, to percolate through a newly democratized society and to be broadly accepted and practiced by a population. And Iraq is still very early in that process. So that's going to make it that patronage politics probably would have happened anyway for that reason, but it's just really uh, it's just really difficult to separate patronage politics from sectarian identity because politicians see that as a vote winner. You know, you can promise people <clears throat> anybody can promise people jobs, money, etc. But if you can make them fear somebody from another group, that kind of gives you an edge. So there is an incentive to maintain the status quo in that regard. Yep, inertia is pretty powerful. And like we talked about with the Iraq war, you can overthrow a government, but you can't change the norms overnight. And that's a glacial process. Very much so. Yeah, we'll see where it goes. Iraqi democracy is actually a really interesting experiment. Because again, that's it's a very weird set of circumstances, but... In effect, you've ended up with an Arab Republic right in the middle of the Middle East, surrounded by absolute monarchies, you know, uh, Iran's Islamic Republic slash theocracy, uh, pan-Arab nationalist military dictatorships like uh, Egypt being a military dictatorship in effect, and of course Bashar al-Assad being the other major pan-Arab nationalist government. So Iraq and its democratic government are a really interesting phenomena kind of anomaly in the region. So it'll be really interesting to see whether or not it survives and how it evolves and just what Arab democracy ends up looking like. Something interesting to watch. So that's Iraq. <laughs> A very brief overview of what's been going on in Iraq for the past several decades. <laughs> <laughs> 
So was there anything else that caught your eye? Uh, I don't think so. I've actually been uh, doing a lot of work on the apartment, finally getting everything set up, making it like home. Which, oh, really? Yeah, it does take a while, I think. Ah, uh, that's true. Because you move in, but then a lot of your stuff is just kind of strewn about. And I get the stream up and running by setting up my PC and all the peripherals and bedroom is set up and things like that. But I do have some other stuff, so I basically had my second room just full of a bunch of random shit. Like I have a, a second mattress and... Uh, I've got another computer chair. I have three backup computers, like old computers. A very similar kind of setup to Kukio, but much less in volume, where you have a bunch of tech items, you have tools. Uh, I got a bunch of art and posters. My bedroom has something like nine posters now. My living area is where I have the studio, and then the other bedroom I'm kind of thinking of having a sort of a meditation space where I can get away from all the electronics because it's pretty distracting to constantly have social media, Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, Discord yeah. popping off constantly, emails, and then Twitch chat and all that. So a few spaces where that noise is reduced can be really valuable mm-hmm. for thinking about new content. It's really hard to be creative when you're just reading random Twitter messages. Mm, yeah. yeah. The internet really can suck you in. Yeah. What was it that uh what was it that Kukio was gonna do? I don't he didn't talk about it much later on, but back before he I think it was when he was still living in Irving. When you guys were still living in Irving, he was talking about uh starting a business where he built isolation chambers, tanks. Is that what it was? Sensory deprivation chambers, yeah. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, maybe you ought to try getting one of those. Yeah, that would be an interesting thing. He was wanting to have an at-home version that people could basically build themselves, so kind of like the IKEA version of that where you have a bare minimum, these are the pieces that you would have to get to make it happen, and then ideally assemble it yourself. It seems like it would be kind of difficult, and I would guess that people like your uh, your leasing office at your apartment, if you're one of those, would not be particularly happy to have that much water somewhere that isn't a bathtub. Mm, yeah. But yeah, that could be a problem. But I think his alignment was chaotic good, so I don't think he would care too much about that. <laughs> <laughs> I felt I a, he... a little bit of the sort of anger that he had. There are a lot of things in society that are really frustrating to see in America and elsewhere. Situations where we've made the mistake collectively so many times that you would think that we could figure it out at this point, but we keep falling back into that same issue over and over again, which is silly. And it's kind of annoying, but like we're talking about with the norms changing over time, it is very, very glacial and you're stuck in a generation. Like we're in the millennial generation and we have millennial problems and 
we might like to be focusing on the advanced civilization of whatever happens after Gen Z and the understanding that they have in that generation, but too bad we're between Zoomers and Boomers and we're just trying to make sense of things and do our best. Well, there there is some... Part of that has to do with um, <clears throat> cohorts. You know, but certain types of political behavior are kind of associated with, uh, well, youths, basically. You know, and so if it seems like uh, we as a society, so to speak, uh, make the same mistakes over and over again, one possible explanation there is that's because you have uh, a constantly changing, well, you have a constantly uh, introduced new cohort of youth voters coming in who have to relearn what the previous cohort had to learn. Uh, well, not relearn, but have to learn what the previous cohort of youth voters had to learn the hard way. You know, the previous cohort ages out. They learn, they evolve, they mature. Uh, but then no sooner do they kind of figure out, figure things out than, oh, here comes this new age group and they have to do the whole thing over again. So that could be part of the reason that it seems like we're just retreading the same ground over and over again. You know, there is, society is not static. You know, you have a constant movement of new people coming up and they have to learn their, you know, they have to learn how things work on their own. You know, it's, uh, and that could, that could just be part of that. That could be partly why it seems like uh, that happens. Yeah, we're also in the internet age too, so we get to have memes about that struggle that's existed for generations. It's the have you heard the OK Boomer thing that people are on about <laughs> these days? Yeah. So that yeah, I saw that. That's the way of dismissing the elders, and then you've got the ways that the elders dismiss the younger generation as worthless and lacking all the same gumption and resolve and wisdom of the older generations. And as some of the wiser people point out, this shit has been happening for thousands upon thousands of years. <laughs> it's not anything new. It, you pretty much always see the kids growing up, being foolish, doing goofy things, and saying that, well, back in my day, we had our shit together, but this younger generation doesn't. And it's going to continue to be that way. So pretty soon we're going to have old Zoomers looking down at those next generations telling them that they're foolish and have no idea what's going on. But then Most likely. But then similarly out of touch with whatever newfangled technology is out in that period. Uh, again, going to... back to that theme of making the same mistakes over and over again and not recognizing the pattern. Well, I think they used to say in the 60s, never trust anybody over 30. That was their big motto, or at least one of them. Hmm. So it's definitely uh, a historical trend, if you like, a historical pattern, as you say. And it's interesting to watch. I don't, I don't really know how widespread this sort of generational tension is, though. I mean, I think somebody online was saying that it was actually people in Gen Z calling people in Gen X boomers mistakenly, and then people what was it boomers mistaking people in gen z for millennials so it's just i don't know how serious <laughs> basically a lot of that is well i think for someone to say okay boomer to a gen x person 
the point of the phrase is to be dismissive and upsetting, I think. It's not really a a broad and versatile counterpoint to a point that's being made to someone. It's more of like, yeah, a, yeah, yeah, old person. So to say OK Boomer to a Gen Xer, you might even say is even more effective than saying OK Boomer to a Boomer. Fair point. Yeah. You've got to think about not just the memes, but the meme tactics here. <laughs> <laughs> it's the principle of the thing. Yeah. Let's see. Did we, uh, are we taking questions? I don't think I saw any new ones. We haven't had any questions yet, but we are accepting them. Okay. That's no problem. I just wanted to check. I've got plenty of material to get through. Uh, so what, do you want to just dig into stuff here, or did you want to start with the Russian professor? What is the Russian professor? Uh, we'll start with the Russian professor. I bet <laughs> if we have anybody from Russia listening, they know exactly what I'm talking about. Because <laughs> this was in the news not that long ago. So <clears throat> this isn't really... Well, it's serious, but it's not like a big news event per se. I just thought this was a weird, interesting story. Uh, so there's this Russian history professor who specializes in the study of Napoleon. And you can go online and you've got, he's got all these pictures of himself, you know, uh, dressed up as Napoleon and, you know, the whole, the whole historical reenactor thing. This guy was all about that. So he's a nerd, basically. He's a very, he's kind of a nerdy a Russian history professor. And what happened is uh, the authorities fished him out of a river, half dead, which people were a little surprised by, especially when it's this cold out. So, you know, they checked him out and he wasn't really terribly responsive. So they started trying to dig through his things. And so they went into his backpack. And what did they find in his backpack, Nero? The bone of Napoleon. Not too far off. They found two severed arms. What? Which was a little surprising. (laughs) So they went back to this guy's apartment once they figured out who he was. And sure enough, there's a woman there, a very dead woman with no head and no arms. So they get to kind of digging into this mystery because obviously something happened. And as it happened... Uh, This guy, who was 63 years old, roughly, I think that's what he was, he had a girlfriend-slash-mistress, one of his students, I think it was, who was about 25 or so, way younger than him. And apparently what happened is they had an argument, and he either accidentally or inadvertently murdered her. Now, this guy's response to that was to try to dispose of the body. That was his go-to. But apparently, he could not quite do that without getting drunk first. Very, very drunk. So when he took the arms to dispose of them in the river, he was so drunk that he fell in. Oh, my goodness. Which is when the police found him. So this story kind of felt a little bit like the Russian version of of the Danish submarine story, which you might remember from a few years ago. It has all of the same drama, but with that distinctive Russian flavor to it. (laughs) 
That's a very silly turn of events. It is. It very much is. I don't know how you accidentally <laughs> murder someone. Oh, what happened to Ivan the Terrible? Well, he didn't really want to murder his son, but he just got so angry that he, well, kind of did. Didn't end very well for Russia then, either. Yeah. Russians got to chill out, man. It's not good for your health to get so angry. So that's just a random story for you. We did Danish submarine a couple years ago, so I thought this was at least somewhat appropriate. Yeah, sometimes you get caught in the standard standard progression of power and push and pull this way and that. Sometimes you need a really dank and fucked up story <laughs> that's confusing <laughs> and questionable at best. And if you add up all the pieces to the puzzle, it doesn't make any sense. And you could probably make a bad movie about it. Oh, yeah. That happens a lot. <clears throat> CNN, CNN used to have... Um, you, well, they still have subcategories for news that you can click on, but one of them back in the day was justice. And they just had all of these stories from you know the justice system, you know people getting arrested for this, that, and the other. And for whatever reason, they always had the most bizarre freak show stories on there. And like reliably so, you know, almost, almost consistently, you could bet that if you went there on any given day, you would read the most mind-bogglingly crazy shit. I won't get too much into that. We'll try to keep it relatively PG. It really was crazy shit. But yeah, there's that always. There's always weird stories. You know, if we wanted to, we could make this whole thing just weird shit that happens in the news. Yeah, we're trying As to balance is. here, though the uh, the practicality of the information, which I think is an interesting yeah. dynamic with consuming news, because many people, I would probably guess, don't really take a pass at that question at all. It's sort of mm -hmm. you consume the news that is directly in front of you, rather than mm -hmm. looking around too much. It's really frustrating to me, like how many people get their news directly from Facebook. Which is a uh, not even second hand. That's usually like third hand news, but it's not even the <laughs> yeah. good, the good journalism that's been passed down. It's usually the worst journalism that get that makes it to Facebook, if you could even call it that. So if you if you see a post by someone on Facebook that doesn't cite any sources and it's very emotional in tone. It might not really be the best news for you to browse. Mm -hmm. Well, I think people who get their news from Facebook aren't really looking for news. It's just kind of, like you say, it's just kind of there. Am I looking for news or am I looking for drama? <laughs> well, that really is pretty much it. You know, if you're, uh, you know, if you're somebody who's a disciplined Facebook user and you're just there for specific information... You know, just kind of in general, see how some friends are doing, whatever. Then maybe it's not as much of a problem. But, you know, if you're bored at work or whatever, and you're just endlessly scrolling through the news feed looking for whatever, then, yeah, you kind of want something that grabs your attention. You know, that in general is how you get hooked on social media. Mm -hmm. 
one of the reasons I had to stop using Reddit back in grad school for a long time. Yeah, it's a limitless fountain of information. And I, th I think calling it information is giving it too much credit. I think of information as a very neutral term. You could have information that has some long-term value that you would consider to be knowledge, and you also have information that is basically just a particular kind of noise. Well, certainly lots of varied noises on the internet. A repost is information, <clears throat> but it's recycled oh information. And it doesn't add anything new to the conversation. <laughs> I think I've been accused of that more than a few times in my life. Well, would you prefer here to, let's see, I've got a bunch of different alternatives. I had a big thing. We talked a lot about, um, what was it, the Trump administration's approach to the Kurdish issue. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple weeks ago. Yes. So I had a big long thing on that, just trying to review it. Um, before that, uh, before that, I did that, I'd also prepared uh, a long summary of the whole Ukraine issue that the Trump administration has been enduring. Uh, but we haven't gotten to that. So that we can do that. But I've also got notes on uh, Bolivia here, among other protests. So is there is there a preference there for you? Let's start with the Kurds and then go to Ukraine. We could just do it in the order that you said it. How's that? Well, we already did the Kurds. We, I actually did the notes for that on stream, I think a couple of weeks ago. Oh, okay. So nothing really different has developed in that front. Yeah, nothing. Well, I did have a brief update, but I don't, we are the bigger, the big summary is done. Okay. So I was just saying that I had two big summaries and that we did one and that the other one is available now if we want to get into that. Okay. Yeah, I think there are a couple questions, but it seems like you have a a good bit of meat. If the questions are already there, you might knock those out first, and then we can do the update on the Kurds and then do Ukraine. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, yeah, we do have one question. Uh, could you please explain the wall of Germany between the East and West School never explained it well, and it always interested me. Hmm, the wall. Well, the wall wasn't, well, the actual, if you're talking about the Berlin Wall, that was uh, specifically in Berlin. Uh, but if you're talking about the Iron Curtain broadly, uh, the, the divide between East Germany and West Germany during the Cold War, uh, that's something else. So uh, I guess I would ask for a little elaboration there. Uh the wall between playing the wall of Germany between the East and West. I guess I could just do both. It's no big deal really. Um, so if you're asking how Germany ended up divided in the cold war, or maybe for those of you who are very young and very unfamiliar with the subject, I'm sure everybody knows there's a country called Germany. So we can start at least with that. <laughs> Anyone who knows <laughs> about Germany, raise your hand. Pretty sure, pretty sure that's a good starting point there for everybody. That's broadly accessible, I think. So, of course, Germany, long story short, tried to take over the world at one point. It went very poorly. And as a result, at the end of World War II, the eastern roughly two-thirds of Germany were occupied by the Soviet Union. 
uh, with the rest of Germany, the Western Third, roughly, uh, being occupied by the Western Allies, the United States and the United Kingdom, uh, as well as France later on. France wasn't originally going to get an occupation zone in Germany, but they wouldn't stop bitching about it, so they carved one out for them. Uh, I think also the Belgians and Dutch actually also participated in that. Technically, they also had their own occupation zone, but it was sort of subordinated to the British occupation zone. So you don't really see it on a map. It was technically within that UK zone. Anyway, um, random trivia. The point is, <laughs> Germany ended up getting split up, but it was never meant to be permanent. You know, the idea was that the Soviets, the US, and the British would occupy different parts of Germany, and a sort of grand plan for the future of Germany uh, would be, uh, what's the word I want? Cooperatively, I guess, implemented. Uh, they would cooperate to implement this common plan uh, for Germany. And part of that plan was, one, deindustrialize Germany. Nobody wanted to get invaded by Germany anymore, so they thought that they would just get rid of German industry so that the Germans would not be able to build a modern industrial military. So that was a big part of the plan. Uh, another part of the plan was that Germany would eventually be uh, unified. That is to say that the occupation would end, there would be one Germany with one German government, but it would be officially neutral. And it would act as a kind of buffer zone between the West and the Soviet Union. So those were two key elements there in the plan for post-war Europe. Now, as it was, that did not happen. That categorically failed. And part of the reason for that is endemic mistrust between the Soviet Union and the West. There were a lot of differences, for one, about uh, the economy. Uh, should Germany have an economy that is centrally planned or should it have a free market economy? Uh, the West was uncomfortable with a centrally planned economy, and all the more so because the Soviets just kind of started doing it in their zone of occupation without really consulting anybody. So there was a sense that uh, the Soviets were basically trying to change facts on the ground so that they could present a fait accompli later on and basically demand it. Now, one of the reasons the West was uncomfortable with that is because they weren't entirely confident that if Germany, which was supposed to be democratic once the occupation ended, uh, if not before, there was a fear that a democratic Germany after the occupation might end up with a communist government that de facto aligned with the Soviet Union. So basically, if the economy in Germany is just so dysfunctional, uh, eventually it may be that communists become the most popular party and they end up in power, and then Germany doesn't really actually end up being neutral. So there was a sense then that this promise to have a neutral Germany didn't really have credibility uh, if a totalitarian political party sympathetic to the Soviet Union ended up being the most popular party. So the West was skeptical of the East, and the East was skeptical of the West in turn, uh, because they saw the West as capitalist and imperialist who were inherently threatened by communism, inherently hated communism, and were inclined to plot against it. You know, they believed that the West had it in for the Soviet Union from the start, and that some kind of end conflict was probably inevitable at some point regardless. So the Soviets and 
keep in mind also this is Stalin, so it's not just the Soviet Union, which was always pretty authoritarian, but the Stalinist Soviet Soviet Union, which was paranoid di- paranoia dialed up to eleven. It was a, it was an extreme variant on the Soviet Union's authoritarian model. So he was very paranoid and was not willing to give the uh, West a lot of room, uh, a lot of discretion. You know, for him, it was all about power. And so when it came to setting up a centrally planned economy in Eastern Germany, he didn't really feel particularly obligated to consult the West on that because he figured they would just say no anyway. And he also, in general, like he did at the end of World War II, was mostly interested in maximizing the Soviet Union's strategic position in Eastern Europe. From what I've read, the Soviet government was planning on facilitating uh, the plan, as it was. Uh, again, deindustrializing Germany and having a democratic but neutral Germany uh, set up in the long run. Uh, but it's not really clear just how legitimate they were in actually uh, facilitating the democratic part. You know, they may well have pushed for uh, communist domination of the, the political system in a democratic neutral Germany after the fact. That's not as clear, but uh, basically the point is that the Soviets didn't trust the West like at all. And uh, that trust was tested several times, uh, specifically as uh, the Western allies started deviating from the plan. So what happened there is that the Western allies uh, started to, for one, they started cooperating. They basically uh, slowly started integrating their different zones, uh, eventually creating a single Western zone of occupation. Uh, they did that on their own accord without consulting the Soviets. So that made the Soviets paranoid that maybe the West was thinking about making the occupation zones permanent, a permanent division rather than a temporary one. Uh, they also didn't like that the West stopped deindustrializing Germany. That was actually abandoned pretty early on. I think they abandoned that in 1946 or so. Jack can correct me on that if I'm wrong. Usual disclaimer, I'm not an expert in everything I talk about. I'm not an expert in most of the things I talk about on here. So if I ever say anything that's wrong, stupid, biased, etc., Chad is encouraged to pitch in and point it out for me. Um, that's much appreciated on my part. You know, I learn a lot. I don't read chat while we do this. Uh, but I will read it later. And so you know, one of the things I get out of this is getting those ki- that kind of feedback. So participation is encouraged on the, on the part of Chad. So that said, uh, in 1946, um, Germany was plagued by famine, uh, general economic collapse, hyperinflation. It was very ugly. And the West believed, again, the West was concerned that communists would get popular and would basically just take power uh, regardless of what happened. And so there was a sense then that deindustrialization was not really feasible in the long run, uh, strategically. <clears throat> there was also uh, a fear that Western Europe would not be able to recover economically unless Germany recovered economically. Germany had been an important part of the European economy writ large. And as Europe struggled to recover after World War II, it was thought that maybe destroying the most developed, well, the economic heart, basically, of the European economy was uh, maybe not going to be good for everybody else on the continent. And that was a problem, again, because there was a fear that communists might become popular, not only in Germany, but also the rest of Europe, you know, if there was not a general economic recovery. So very early on, then, the Western allies uh, changed attack 
and uh, moved shifted away from deindustrialization and started focusing more on actually rebuilding Germany, or at least facilitating the rebuilding of Germany. One of the big things they did uh, was to allow the mayor of, uh, I think it was Berlin. I don't quite remember if it was the mayor of Berlin, if it was just a major German politician in Western Germany. Uh, but basically, uh, there was a German politician who wanted to deal with hyperinflation uh, by reintroducing, well, introducing a new German currency. Now, the Soviets, for their part, were quite happy with hyperinflation in Germany because it was part of that overarching plan of destroying the German economy. Uh, so when the Western allies started moving to introduce a new German, German currency in order to stabilize the market, uh, the Soviets saw that as a form of Western duplicity. They saw that as the West trying to build up Germany, uh, not as a neutral state, as had been agreed, but as a Western-aligned uh, state that would be uh, an ally against the Soviet Union. So the point of all this is just to illustrate how and why uh, there was some mistrust between the Soviets and the Western allies. Now, there were continuous, well, not continuous, but a number of different negotiations, uh, you know, summits and whatnot, where the fate of Germany was discussed. And all of them recognized, you know, from start to finish, that the ideal was an independent, neutral Germany that could be a buffer zone. And it just never worked out. There were just too many tensions between the two parties. Um, an interesting example, an in interesting relevant example here is uh, Austria. Um, you know, for those of you who are maybe not familiar with the relevant history here, Germany annexed Austria before World War II. It was called um, Anschluss, I think. It's probably not how it's pronounced, but uh, they annexed Austria. And then after World War II, Austria was broken away from Germany and made independent again. Uh, but what you may not know uh, is that Austria was actually divided into occupation zones just like Germany was. So there was a Soviet occupation zone in the east, an American zone, a British zone, and then sort of a bullshit French zone that was carved out of the British zone later on after the fact. Again, the French wanted to participate. Uh, so the result then was a sort of parallel negotiation to the German negotiations uh, about what would happen with Austria. Now, the same plan was basically in place for Austria. Austria was supposed to become a neutral country uh, that was not occupied by anybody and that was democratic, etc., etc. And in the 1950s, in order to build trust uh, with the West, you know, the, Kru the Khrushchev government in the Soviet Union uh, approached uh, the Eisenhower government in the, U in the U.S. and actually offered to basically fulfill uh, the plan for Austria uh, to pull out in the occupation uh, to unify Austria and have a neutral government there. And so those negotiations went on and were actually successful. Uh, Austria ended up becoming a neutral state for the duration of the Cold War. The occupation ended and uh, everything went according to plan. And it was hoped then that the goodwill generated from that could then lead to a similar outcome for Germany. Uh, but tensions in the 1950s were very high and Germany was different than Austria. Austria was a lot smaller. It wasn't as strategically located. It, it didn't have as big an economy. Uh, so the Soviets were not, and the West for that matter, were not as willing uh, to give up Germany, or at least their respective occupation zones, as readily as they were Austria, which was more of a token in the negotiations than an objective unto itself. I remember reading that the U.S. was actually pretty surprised 
by the Soviets willing to give up Austria because they had seen, they had thought that the Soviets thought uh, that the uh, that Austria was a strategic location for as a potential jumping off point, uh, for example, for operations against the West in a potential Third World War. Uh, but as it was, the Soviets didn't actually see it like that. So that's an example of how uh, not understanding your uh, counterparty's perspective can uh, undermine or at least muddle uh, a negotiation like that. Both parties again assumed the other was very hostile, so that kind of was a, that sort of underlined the whole negotiation process. That, anyway, the point it well, sorry, that reminds me of a Daniel Dennett quote <clears throat> when he's talking about debate and discussion in general is that for you to truly be successful at debate, you should be able to explain your opponent's perspective so well that if you were to say it to them, they would say, oh yeah, I wish I would have thought of it like that. Like You don't necessarily have to agree with them, but if you don't even understand their position, then it's really hard to attack the the principles that it's based upon. Yeah, that's a really good approach. Yeah, but we ought to encourage that more. Yep. <laughs> well, uh, the end result here with the German negotiations is that the temporary occupation and separation of Germany into East and West uh, ended up becoming permanent because the Soviet Union and the U.S. could not agree on how to, to could could not agree on any plan that uh, both parties were comfortable would actually result in a neutral uh, Germany in the middle of the continent. So the Soviets then formed a state in their zone that became uh, the German Democratic Republic, East Germany. And then the West uh, allowed the uh, government that they had formed in Western Germany to evolve into a fully sovereign state. Uh, that being the Federal Republic of Germany, I think it was. West Germany, as it was called colloquially. So that was sort of the genesis then of the two different Germanys. And uh, the Soviets, for their part, had a problem in their zone because a lot of the educated people uh, in Eastern Germany started to leave. Because obviously in a communist system, uh, you're not, you're not going to make nearly as much money or live as well as you will in a free market system. So a lot of those people started getting out. And the result was a shortage of skilled labor. Uh, you know, doctors, um, maybe not so much lawyers per se. It's not as relevant in a centrally planned economy. But uh, doctors, you know, plumbers, you know, just any kind of skilled labor you can think of. A lot of those people were getting out. And so in order to stop uh, the loss of that labor, you know, stop the brain drain, as they would call it in economics, uh, they started to put limits on the ability of people to travel freely between East and West Germany which had not really been as much of a problem before. You know, in the first 10-some years of the occupation of Germany, it wasn't necessarily that hard to travel between the different occupation zones. But that changed uh, once the negotiations for the future of Germany failed and uh, East and West Germany became permanent fixtures. And so that brings me then... I mean, that, that, that became the new status quo. So that sort of, that it sort of explains the divide between East and West Germany. Uh, but then to get to the other part of the question that I think this person was asking, might have been asking, uh, the Berlin Wall. So the, mo the most stark uh, manifestation of the desire by the communists in East Germany and the Soviet Union uh, to block off East Germany from West Germany to stop people leaving 
uh, was in Berlin. So Berlin is a weird entity in the Cold War. So in general, Germany was divided with the eastern two-thirds being occupied by the Soviets, the western third occupied by the western allies. But Berlin, which was located in eastern Germany, was also divided between the victorious allied powers. So the Soviets got the eastern half of the city of Berlin, and then the rest of Berlin was divided between the United States, the UK, and then later on the French. Now, again, that just illustrates how this whole thing was supposed to be temporary. I don't think anybody in their right mind would agree to that if they thought that would be a permanent division. But as was, it was meant to be kind of a symbolic thing, I think, uh, where everybody would be represented in Berlin and then the rest of Germany would be treated differently. Now, it became a problem then later on, once East and West Germany became permanently established, that the West was still in Berlin. It never left. So West Berlin, as it became called, became its own distinctive political entity, uh, just sort of embedded in Eastern Germany. And East Berlin then became uh, sort of a separate entity. They, in effect, uh, became two separate cities. Still one city, uh, but divided. And for a long time, it was easy to move between them. But then I think in the late 50s, early 60s, thereabouts, uh, the East German government started building a wall, you know, literally a wall between East Berlin and West Berlin. And I think not, even, I think not only that, I think they also built it around West Berlin in general. Uh, so not just the divide between the two parts of the city, but also separating it from other areas so that people couldn't easily get into the countryside. Somebody from Germany would know better than me. I hope they can correct me on that. Uh, but again, they put up the wall for the same reasons that they were making it more difficult to travel to West Germany in general. They were trying to stop the brain drain. Uh, now, it's, it's easy to set up border checkpoint, well, relatively easy to set up border checkpoints, minefields, watchtowers along the border with West Germany. Uh, but Berlin is within East, West Berlin was within East Germany itself. And what people could do is they could travel from other parts of East Germany or from East Berlin and travel to West Berlin which again had a Western government. And from there they could uh, go to the airport and just fly to Western Germany. So that was a problem, obviously. And so in order to stem the brain drain, they built the wall, the famous Berlin Wall. And uh, that wall stood for, what, 40 some years through the 60s, 70s and 80s, up until 1989, I think it was. So the Berlin Wall was a relatively effective means by which to stop the brain drain, but it was also terrible PR. <laughs> it really was. It was just a, a very stark symbol of uh, the authoritarian nature of the Soviet system of government and of communism in general. And then, of course, it didn't help that there was any number of people that tried to cross the wall, you know, climb the wall, get over it, what have you, who ended up getting shot by border guards. So there was a lot of drama there. That was definitely one of the key front lines, so to speak, of the Cold War. It was a very bizarre situation, though. Uh, at, at one point, the Soviets did try to basically starve the West out of West Berlin. That was the famous Berlin airlift. Uh, you know, once it, I think it was in the late 40s when it seemed that it, was the, it wasn't clear that Germany, Germany's division was going to be permanent, but uh, relations were deteriorating, and in order to make sure uh, or, well, in order to try to make sure that the West did not end up with some 
this bizarre enclave in the middle of uh, the Soviet's Eastern European Empire. Uh, the Soviets cut off uh, West Berlin from land supplies. Uh, there had been an agreement in place uh, that the West could send supplies from West Germany, uh, which they controlled through East Germany, that the Soviets controlled in order to supply West Berlin. So that agreement was broken then by the Soviets in 19, I want to say it was in 1948. Uh, that agreement was broken, and so in order to get around the inability to send land supplies, a massive airlift was organized that involved a huge number of cargo planes in order to supply the people of Berlin, not only the uh, military, the Western military uh, troops deployed in Western Berlin, but just the whole population of West Berlin, to keep them supplied by air, which sounds feasible now, but at that time was really difficult. Keep in mind... Uh, if I'm right, and it was 48, it had only been a few years before when uh, German troops in Stalingrad had been surrounded and the Germans had tried to keep them supplied by air and failed miserably. So the idea of sustaining an entire city by airlift, that was a tall order. That was a very difficult thing to do. As it was, they pulled it off. And so the Soviets eventually relented and agreed to adhere to the original terms of the agreement, which, by the way, they actually did throughout the Cold War. Uh, throughout the Cold War, not just in the early days after World War II, uh, the West, that is to say the United States, Britain, and France, had the right and privilege under con very controlled circumstances, but they had the right and privilege uh, to take convoys of supplies and troops from West Germany through East Germany to West Berlin. That was something that was allowed and happened, and it actually, it actually led to some tension. There was a guy named David Hackworth. At one time, he was the most decorated uh, soldier in the army, army's history. I, I don't remember if it was in the army's history or just in the army at the time, but he was a Vietnam vet who had also fought in the Korean War and had enlisted, had actually fought in World War II as well. He enlisted when he was uh, underage. He was like 14 years old and lied his way into the army. So he ended up fighting in three major American wars. And uh, he wrote a book, uh, called About Face, that just more or less uh, autobiographical. And uh, one of the experiences he talked about was when he was a uh, part of a detachment of troops that were supposed to drive through uh, East Germany to West Berlin. And this was in the early 60s when the Cold War was particularly hot. I think it was in the maybe, yeah, early 60s, late 50s, right around there. And uh, part of the deal between the Soviets and the West is that any troops that were going to go through East Germany uh, had to be inspected. Uh, well, I should say trucks. All of the trucks had to be inspected. But there were very, very specific rules about how the inspection could be carried out. So one of the rules is that uh, the Soviet inspectors could not actually touch the trucks. So what happened during one particular inspection that David Hackworth was on, one of these Soviet... they. I say inspectors, but basically they were just infantrymen. So one of these Soviet infantrymen uh, was trying to lead in to look into the back of one of the trucks that were being sent out to uh, West Berlin, and he just happened to touch the truck. Now, as it was, the truck was full of American infantrymen, and one of them saw him do that and kicked him in the face, <laughs> which was not terribly diplomatic. Technically, he was breaking the rules by touching the truck, but... It was a little much. 
And so David Hackworth said that everybody held their breath after that because nobody knew whether that was World Three or just what would happen there. And as it was, uh, the Soviet staff sergeant who was there walked up to the guy who got kicked in the face and bitched him out. He blamed him because he'd broken the rule and the Soviets were just as nervous about it as the Americans were. I, so I thought you were going to say the Soviet commander went over and kicked him in the face. <laughs> no, nothing nothing quite that dramatic, but yeah, he, he definitely got chewed out. So that just illustrates how tense relations were in general, but it also illustrates that this deal uh, that allowed the West to send convoys through to West Germany, that was kind of a continual fixture throughout the Cold War. Uh, it wasn't even the only example of that, actually. There was another weird, this is sort of a, just a weird artifact in general, I guess you just call it trivia. Uh, but the western zone of West Berlin was not entirely contiguous. There were actually very small areas that were basically enclaves controlled by the West that were technically part of West Berlin, but were not actually connected to it by contiguous territory. They were just these little isolated enclaves. Some of them were just farms or just little villages. And there was one farm. It was really just, I think, a farm. And uh, the family that lived there had a daughter. And, of course, the daughter has to go to school. But, of course, they don't want her to go to school in East Germany. So uh, in order for her to go to school then, she had to go through East German territory to walk to uh, West Berlin to go to school. But in order to facilitate that, there had to be some kind of agreement to make it legal because the East Germans and the Soviets aren't just going to, you know, allow people to walk willy nilly between, you know, East between through their territory, between this farm area, the farmhouse, basically, in West Berlin. So there was a negotiation and the agreement was that she would have to be escorted uh, from her house to Berlin. So every time this girl went to school, uh, she had a armed military escort uh, to take her to and fro. So that's that's just how specific they got uh, with maintaining this deal and maintaining movement of people between these territories. It was a it was a very interesting period of history. It really was high drama, especially when tensions were running very high. <clears throat> but anyway, that's. That's a rough rundown of East and West Germany, at least from what I remember. Cool. Well, you got positive comments in the chat in response to that from the person who asked the question, so good job. Oh, cool. Thank you. Yeah, hopefully that gives the uh, desired elaboration. So let's see. Our next question, how long do you think it will be until a large-scale attack happens on Israel and by whom, Turkey or Iran? Who aids Israel more and what country supports the Palestinian cause, quote unquote, the most? I don't think anybody's going to attack Israel on a large scale because Israel doesn't have nukes. Wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the worst kept secret in the world. Israel doesn't have nukes, but they always kind of implicitly threaten it. And it's sort of common knowledge that they kind of do even though they're not really supposed to. You can kind of blame the French for that. It's not, you know, and, they're not nukes. It's just very effective mining equipment. We talked about <laughs> this with regards to Space Force, of how you're not allowed to weaponize different things in outer space. And mm -hmm. made the joke about, well, what's the difference between dynamite that's used to 
clear space for mining operations and a bomb. It's basically where you put it. Oh, yeah. Mining equipment. Well, the Israelis have a considerable, considerable amount of mining equipment, <laughs> at least by the standards of the Middle East. It's not like you need a whole lot. Countries are pretty small. So a handful of nukes will do the job. Uh, for that reason, Israel has a pretty significant amount of deterrence. They've actually had them for a while. There was rumors that they almost used them in 1973 during the Yom Kippur War. Now, for those of you not familiar with the Yom Kippur War, Israel was uh, attacked by Egypt and Syria. Uh, but it wasn't just any attack. It was a surprise attack. The Israelis actually got caught off guard, and uh, their front line actually collapsed pretty early on in the war to the point where there was a real concern they might actually lose. And so the rumor is that the Israelis uh, came very close to using the nuclear weapons that they don't technically have in that conflict. But again, that's just a rumor, anybody's guess. You may wonder how the hell they ended up with nukes in the first place. Uh, the French government went out of its way to do a bunch of weird shit in the Middle East during the Cold War. And that had to do with partly Charles de Gaulle, uh, wanting to have an independent foreign policy for France. You know, successive French leaders, not just de Gaulle, uh, still, well, after uh, World War II, viewed France as a great power. But obviously its status as a great power had been significantly diminished. Its economy took a beating during the war. And uh, all of its, well, most of its colonies were in almost, if not explicit, open revolt after World War II. Of course, the period, 20 years after World War II were all about liberation and independence movements. So, you know, the French fought wars in Algeria, Indochina, and probably other places I don't even know about. And the result is that uh, they weren't in the best place, basically, in that period. And that just compounded this sort of inferiority complex that evolved out of World War II uh, that involved the successive French governments being paranoid about the Anglo-American alliance. There was a perception that the United States and Britain, being the, being the premier powers uh, after World War II, were conspiring with each other to basically run the world. And there was a real fear and concern on the part of Paris that they were being cut out of that, that they were not being given their proper due uh, as a perceived great power themselves. And uh, for a while, that was played down. It was almost always a problem, even in the 1940s. Uh, and through the early 50s. But by the late 50s and early 60s, uh, the French government was going even further out of its way to try to establish itself as a great power by de facto, but not, well, I shouldn't say, de jure, rather. They de jure broke with the West. Technically, they broke with the United States diplomatically. They actually technically left NATO, uh, etc. So, and part of that involved establishing relations with a number of Middle Eastern governments that were kind of sort of socialist and kind of sort of aligned with the Soviet Union, but not explicitly. And the French government pursued independent relationships with them uh, separate from the rest of the West, the United States in particular. And the French perception was that they were being more realistic, that it just wasn't realistic to, you know, exclude all of these Arab countries, that it would be better to engage with them, trade with them, etc. And as part of this sort of independent Middle Eastern policy that the French established, they ended up establishing ties with Israel and supposedly helping them develop their nuclear weapons. Uh, they were probably the ones who were behind that. 
Now, the French had a very adventurous Cold War, but they never really actually broke with the West. That was mostly just politics. I say de jure for a reason. De facto, they were actually still members. And it came out, I think, 10, 15 years ago, sometime around that period, that in fact, there was a, there was a secret agreement between the French government and the rest of NATO that if there were actually was a war, uh, then French forces would be made available to the NATO command structure again. So really, it was all just theater. Very loud, obnoxious theater, but effective theater. Let's see. So I don't think anybody's going to attack Israel for that reason. I don't think Tur Turkey definitely won't. Turkey doesn't really care that much. Erdogan makes a lot of noise because he's a political Islamist, quote-unquote, kind of, sort of, about Israel and how they mistreat the Palestinians. But really, for him, that's more of an election issue. It's not really something I think he really wants to do a whole lot about. He's just drawing you know, support from his base. Yeah, it's pandering. You know, For him, it's an election issue. He's a pretty transactional politician. So realistically, he wants business ties with Israel because those are... Uh, vectors for, you know, maybe not corruption explicitly, but corruption for deals, you know, that can benefit him and his patronage network. And solving the Palestine issue, and this is something that applies not only to Erdogan and Turkey, but the broader Middle East, solving the Palestine issue would be very bad for a lot of governments, because a lot of governments use the Palestine issue to try to bolster their credentials with their population. You know, if you screw up the economy or you are just endemically corrupt or, you know, whatever dumb thing it is you're doing, you can try to get some support back from the people by issuing some empty token statements in support of the Palestinian. So, so that's kind of a wet form of deflection, if you like. You're trying to deflect attention by pointing out that the Palestine, Palestinian issue was still a thing and that you're doing some token bullshit to try to help them. Now, in, in Turkey's case, Erdogan in particular leans on that. You know, for him, it's a useful issue. And uh, actually dealing with it by trying to attack Israel and force their hand, that doesn't actually help him that much. It's not really that useful. You know, the Palestine issue is more useful the worse the Israelis behave, because then the, the more political points you get for coming out and lambasting, you know, condemning them or doing whatever token thing you're doing with them. But I don't think it's something that the governments in Turkey or the region writ large are necessarily that invested in. It's, That's always been the case. And, you know, Palestinians, I think, will be the first to tell you that. If For those not familiar with this history, when Israel declared independence, or more accurately, when the UN you know, officially declared that they were independent, however you want to frame that, uh, every almost every Arab country in the Middle East declared war on them. So this is 1948. This as soon as they were independent, the first thing they had on their hands was a massive regional war with all of their neighbors. Now, if you look at a map, you'll notice that Israel is not that big. Even today, it only has like six, seven million people in it. It's very small. And it was even smaller back in 1948. So how is it that Israel was able to survive this onslaught by all of these states around it? Like Egypt in particular is way bigger. How is it able to survive an attack by Egypt, Iraq, Syria, all of these Arab countries? 
And the reason is, besides the fact that they were effective fighters, you know, they had good leadership, but they had a lot of veterans from World War II fighting for them. But the big, probably the biggest factor is that those Arab states that declared war on Israel in solidarity with the Palestinians, they didn't actually really do much. They declared war, but they didn't really send their entire army. Generally, they'd send like a battalion or a company or something like that. They could have done more, but that would have been hard. <laughs> it would have been more effort. It's much easier just to send a token force and say, okay, I'm helping. And maybe, to be fair, they thought that the Israelis would have been easily overrun and that they didn't have to try very hard. But regardless, the end result is that they didn't really invest a lot of energy into the, into the problem. And the result is that the Israelis were able to win uh, that, that war and maintain their independence. And even though that ended up being a disaster for the Arabs, governments in the region have never really treated the Israel-Palestine Israel issue differently than they did in that first war. It's always been an issue that they pretend is important, but treat in effect as a peripheral issue. It's not something they generally dedicate a lot of resources for. Obviously, there were exceptions in 1967 and 1973. Uh, but in, even in those cases, it was more about pandering to the base. It was more about, in, you know, in 1967 and 73, it was about Nasser in Egypt uh, trying to play up his political support in the public and maintain his grip on power. You know, if not for that, it might not even not, might not have happened. So, if I've been following you correctly, would you say that talk is cheap and war campaigns are expensive? Yes, that's a good summary. It's a pretty wild idea, but yeah, I think it it checks out. I'm doing some math right here on this napkin. <laughs> Saying words. Yeah, saying words is pretty easy. It's pretty funny, too, when, in this case, you're saying words against Israel, but then at the same time, you're going to do business with them later. So oh, yeah. it kind of makes you wonder if the leaders are talking to each other and they're like, yeah, so I'm going to talk shit about you next Wednesday. Uh, I don't mean it. It's to get votes, so don't take it too personally. So the news comes <laughs> out on Wednesday. Prime Minister of this country talks mad shit about another leader. Everyone's like, oh, shit, he just said that. But then they're winking at each other like, hey, got some votes. Easy money. Yeah, that's a mutually beneficial understanding that many politicians and governments around the world have with each other. It's just sort of par for the course. It's one of the reasons that the Saudis and the United States government kind of are able to maintain their relationship. You know, the U.S. government can come out and condemn human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia and nothing happens because really the Saudis understand that the U.S. government kind of has to do that in order to appease people who are very critical of the Saudi government and the things it does. But realistically, it knows that the strategic relationship is the priority for Washington and that at the end of the day, they're always going to come back. So that's an international example of that phenomena. That sounds strikingly similar to an unhealthy relationship. <laughs> <laughs> We're not actually going to address the issue that causes a consistent rift. We're just going to pretend like we're working on it so that people leave us alone. Oh, okay. Well, there there is some truth to that. But I think the difference is that the United States really is an equal partner in that. 
you know, the United States does get something out of its relationship with the Saudis. It gets a voice in how the Saudis set oil prices. It gets a strategic position in the heart of the Middle East. It has a powerful ally in Middle Eastern affairs. It has a reason to be there in the first place, which is could be important depending how you want to view it. That's more debatable. But uh, the U.S. does have get strategic benefit from allying with the, with the Saudis in the Middle East. It isn't a completely one-sided affair where the U.S. just protects them and doesn't get anything in return. You know, it does get some. It does get a a return on that investment, so to speak. Whereas, if you're in an unhealthy relationship, then probably not getting that much out of it. Probably. Yeah, inertia is very strong, though. People got to maintain oh, boy, the status okay. quo. I do loves me some status quo. <laughs> so predictable, so comfortable. Yeah. It's hard to say no. Yeah. Definitely one of my vices. Change is uncomfortable. The Kukio quote is change happens when the pain to remain the same becomes too great. Yep, I remember that. Which is a, a good thing to bring up whenever People are complaining about change not happening as fast as they would like, which I think is very common, especially in our generation. Yeah. Hmm. Well, anyway, let's take a look at this last question. Why did the USSR sign the Antarctic Treaty? It seems so random, and it makes me think there is something in Antarctica the world governments don't want us grunts to know. There actually is. I think I saw a documentary about this a while back, and from what I remember, there, there is actually a temple in Antarctica that these aliens called predators use to practice hunting. I think that's what it was. And it has aliens in it. I, I don't remember the details exactly, but uh, supposedly there's a lot of technology there they discovered after it blew up because something, something happened. Again, didn't really watch it, so I'm not sure. <laughs> I saw the highlights. There was an Honest Trailers thing. Wow. Yeah, I don't know specifically why the USSR signed the Antar Antarctic Treaty. I would guess they just did it because, you know, not everything is a conspiracy. It probably just, I mean, the Soviets have no claims on Antarctica. They can't really just go there and say, okay, we claim this. You know, generally other people who claim land in Antarctica have land that is internationally recognized as theirs that is peripheral to Antarctica. So the British have the Falklands Islands. Uh, Argentina and Chile have the... Um, what are they called? The Fuegos something, something, Islands of Fire. I don't quite remember what that was, but that southern bit of the southern cone in South America. That's right next to Graham's Land in Antarctica. And Australia is just close in general. Norway has uh, that one weird island that it has for some reason in South, South, the South Atlantic. Have you heard of this, Nero, this island? I don't, I don't, actually, I don't remember the name of it exactly, but Norway actually has an island in the South Pacific, just completely randomly. Like every other island there in the South Pacific is British, uh, maybe French. I think Kwagalein is around there. But then there's just this one tiny isolated island that belongs to Norway. And I think based on that, 
Norway bases its claim that it has some territory in Antarctica. Make of that what you will. I don't know. It doesn't really surprise me that much. I mean, I just read the Viking Art of War book, and if there's a cold place and there's an island, then they're going to stick a flag on it and call it theirs. They've done that for a thousand years at this point. <laughs> so That's but, true. It's this very much their style. Going to the cold areas in the southern hemisphere and doing a similar thing. It's not very contested territory either. I mean, it's cold as heck, so... You don't really have to fight for it. <clears throat> These ice yeah, cubes not, are mine. But I'm not sure why or how they ended up there. That's a history I'm not familiar with. Mm. And it just seems so non-sequitur. I would expect them to be like up in the North Pole, kind of in that area. You know, islands up there. Yeah, well, I, I think no a lot of people who do an Arctic expedition and are successful in that, I mean, they've already trained all the skills and techniques and have all the equipment and stuff for one at the opposite pole. So the, the experience is almost the same. The equipment True. and training is almost the same. So if you've done one, then a lot of people who do that kind of stuff do it for the sense of achievement and accomplishment of doing something really dangerous. Mm. So I think they're among the set of people who would feel a similar amount of excitement for going to the South pole as the North pole. <clears throat> Hmm. Yeah, I could see that. Like, that could be how they ended up with it—just an expedition in general, needing a launching off, jumping off point. You know, that could have been it. Certainly uh, less comfortable than resting on your couch browsing Reddit, but some people are. Well, I know do which it. one I prefer. <laughs> yeah. So let's see. Well, as far as the question. I don't think that the Soviets, you know, signed it because there's something there that they wanted. I think it was just sort of the couth thing to do. It was an international agreement. I think pretty much everybody signed it, if I'm not mistaken. It was just it's sort of a mutual agreement that nobody tries to settle or develop Antarctica. So above and beyond just claiming territory, it's also about not trying to, you know, set up oil rigs or, you know, what have you. So let's see. I that do have to give us... you props. The deadpan of that alien pyramid bit was so good. The chat was just in a riot. A lot of people, they're just so used to you just being straight up and truthful and calm and factual and comprehensive and insightful. And then here he goes and they're, they're following you like one sentence. They're like, wait, wait. Oh, shit. He's referencing the movie. God, you got me. Well, you know, Aliens versus Predator doesn't get a lot of love. So, yeah, they figured I'd give it a little attention. Well, that's the joke that's in the Pirates of the Caribbean, which is that it's the honest people you have to watch out for because <laughs> you trust them because they've been honest so much so far, which means that they have the greatest potential to bamboozle you with some mm. well-timed deadpan humor. Oh, yeah. Respect. Did you ever see the second one? The second Alien versus Predator? Yeah, uh, it's hard for me to distinguish those movies because usually it's like it's a movie that's on that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I know what you mean. I'll watch, but I'm not like, ooh, what's this? What's the bigger picture in this work of art? What is the director trying to tell us here? It's like, <laughs> that's kind of the mindset in those movies for me. Yeah, I, I did see the second one, and I. 
I don't want to say I liked it, but it was okay. It was basically Detective Predator in the case of the missing alien. Hmm. Yeah, kind of a weird story, basically, but that was kind of the vibe I got from it. It was interesting. Because the Predators are the anti-hero characters, right, and the alien is the villain? Kind of. It's more like, I don't even want to say anti-hero. It was a weird story. It was like, again, it was like a it was like one predator investigating the loss of some aliens in a shipment, and then he just kind of does random shit around Earth occasionally, hmm. and then interspersed with that plot is another plot involving humans, just sort of running around and getting killed by aliens and sometimes the predator. It's like two different movies sort of jammed together. Maybe they had a plan for a second and a third to film at the same time, and they're like, ah, we don't have enough for a third movie. <laughs> could be. That could be it. Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, it's... To be fair, it's kind of difficult to make an Aliens versus Predator story. Like, how do you do that? And I know there's got to be at least one massive nerd listening who says, why not just use the books? some of which I have actually read when I was in middle school. I don't think that those are really easily adaptable. You know, I don't, I don't, I think it would be pretty hard to do, suffice to say. I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too much, but I will say that much. Well, I don't know a ton about the lore. I got really excited when Prometheus was announced because I thought we were going to get the lore of the whole thing. And then uh, uh. they just got to the the guy's room and then he just like killed people and yelled and i was like man just give like one conversation to understand the lore of what's going on that would be so cool but nope nope we gotta kill well, stuff again okay well to be fair i think uh ridley scott was it yep i think the lore is kind of the point for him you know it's something that he wanted to make a trilogy that was kind of his plan from the start and I think sort of telling the story of the lore and kind of unveiling the lore is something he wanted to do over the course of the three movies as to tell a larger story that he kind of has in mind about, you know, existentialism and, you know, faith and the origins of man, you know, that kind of thing. <clears throat> so I don't, I don't begrudge him too much for Prometheus for not unveiling much because I think he did kind of intend from the start for that just to be the first entry in a trilogy. But I think he kind of ran into a problem then because Prometheus didn't make as much money as the studios wanted. So then in order to make the second movie, which I think was Requiem? No. no whatever it was, Alien something or other. In order to make the second movie, he had to agree to allow, well, to include more action, basically, to have it be more of a traditional Aliens movie. Kind of like what people wanted more from Prometheus. And it ended up being kind of an awkward mix because he still wanted to tell his story. So the result is that the second one is kind of, again, sort of two different movies. It's like half of the movie is a traditional Aliens movie and then the other half is like Ridley Scott art film. It's sort of jarring how it shifts between the two. So to be fair, that was kind of a necessary compromise from his perspective just to get the movie made so that he can keep telling that story. But the result is that the storytelling is a little disjointed between Prometheus and then Aliens, whatever it was. Requ I want to say Requiem. Requiem? 
Requiem. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And then there's supposed to be a third one. That's an interesting movie meta. The opposite is what happened with The Hobbit, I think. Oh, really? Yeah, well, in this case, you're talking about really Scott wanted three movies to be able to flesh out his story, but he got, like, two. So it was kind of squished and disjointed, and the the tones weren't exactly what he wanted them to make because of external pressure. With The Hobbit, it was one story that should have been one movie was stretched across three and then they added a bunch of stuff in and if you know anything about Tolkien fans they're very loyal to the original text and for good reason there's a ton of text and there's also a lot of appendices and companion things that Tolkien himself wrote so if you wanted to just do stuff in the movie that was purely based on that you could but they made shit up that upset a lot of people and it also like you're saying with the action movie versus art film it also changed the tone of the hobbit movies to make them kind of trying to be epics like lord of the rings is an epic it's an epic that's told across three movies and it it feels right because that's how it was written the hobbit was written as a whimsical journey where it's a little guy in the shire and he's like what's all this shit and he just gets basically his arm twisted into going in this really dangerous journey where he meets a bunch of interesting people, but it's all from his perspective where they make it to where in the second and third movies, it ends up pulling in a lot of the legendary characters of the wizards and the elves and the high council and all these other big names that people recognize from the other movies. So they get that wow factor of, Oh shit. Legolas is in the Hobbit. Oh shit. Galadriel is in the Hobbit. Oh shit, Gandalf, Galadriel, and all these other Elrond people are all doing like a magic fight with Sauron? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> that, it was technically referenced in The Hobbit as a thing that happened, but we got a fight scene that pretty much looked like a MOBA game, where it was like a <laughs> a five-person team casting magic spells and flipping around and stuff. Which, as a kid watching it, you're like, that's cool! But, uh, yeah, it it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, for sure. But yeah, it's the opposite problem of too little content stretch over too many movies versus uh, too few movies to be able to make the kind of content that you wanted to. Mm. It sounds like the studios wanted to make Lord of the Rings too more than they wanted to make an honest adaptation. Yeah, well, Lord of the Rings was one of the most successful productions of all time by both the money and the awards that it got so you could see why they would want some of that cheddar it made new zealand it didn't exist before but afterwards it sure did <laughs> <laughs> how are we doing on uh time oh we're fine i mean we've been going for about two hours i know your energy is a factor and i'm two hours earlier than you as I'm on the West Coast. Gotcha. So okay, if you wanted checking. to go for an hour, you could. If you wanted to go for an hour and a half, you could. If you want to be done now, you can. Gotcha. Okay. So let's see. Uh, okay, so you said you wanted the Kurdish update. So let's jump into that. Syria update. Okay. <laughs> so this is pretty short. Uh, so what came out this past week 
I think it was this past week, uh, about 600 U.S. troops are going to end up staying in Syria after all. You know, the previous drama was that the Trump administration was saying that it was going to fully pull out of Syria. And slowly, intermittently, it's been walking that back over time. Uh, the Turks and the Syrian government kind of are basically going to split that border region between the Kurdish territory and Turkey between themselves. But it looks like the Kurds are going to hang on to the rest of their territory. Uh, it still is going to hurt them a lot to lose that border region because a big chunk of the Kurdish population lives in there, or at least used to before they all left as refugees. But uh, there will still be YPG territory in the eastern, northeastern Syria. And it seems as though there will be some of a US, something of a U.S. commitment to protect them in the form of these 600 U.S. troops who will be there. Uh, nominally, the Trump administration is rationalizing, uh, well, justifying keeping troops there in terms of protecting the oil, which is weird because Syria really doesn't have a lot of oil. And that's kind of been a long-running thing with regard to the conflict in Syria. I kind of wonder if people don't just assume that Syria has a lot of oil because it's in the Middle East and it's an Arab country, but it actually really doesn't. Uh, the Islamic State controlled territory that had some oil in it, and they got a good chunk of their revenue from selling oil in eastern Syria, made, from, made in eastern, well, extracted from eastern Syria. Uh, but that doesn't mean that Syria is some kind of OPEC producer. OPEC, it's, not a, it's not an OPEC member. It's not a major oil producer. Uh, so the idea then that the U.S. has some kind of interest in protecting oil in Syria feels a little contrived to me. And I kind of wonder if that isn't just the administration trying to find some cover uh, while it walks back its earlier announcement to fully pull out. I don't know if they're walking that back because they just genuinely care about the Kurds and are trying to try to mitigate some of the damage, or if they were just planning on staying all along and that Trump was just running his mouth and that they need to cover for that, or what the deal is. I mean, it's it's hard to read the Trump administration. He just he talks so much shit. It's hard to tell what's actual pol actual policy versus just him grandstanding. So it's a little difficult to interpret, but the takeaway here is that before it seemed as though the U.S. was on the way out and that it would not be a player in Syria, now it looks like that it will continue to be a player in Syria, although the extent to which it will be so is still in question. The troops will be on the ground. That'll be a deterrence. Uh, that'll be a deterrent to uh, either the Syrian government or the Turks moving into the remaining Kurdish territory. But the Kurds themselves, I think, are within their rights to kind of quest, question the long-term credibility of that U.S. commitment. And it may be that they actually move to reconcile with the Syrian government, even with the U.S. troops there, which could lead to some awkward problems for the U.S. then, because the Syrian government is obviously allied with Iran. And so if uh, the Syrian government asks the Kurds to allow Iranian troops or uh, other strategic assets to move through Kurdish territory, uh, well, then the U.S., with its troops being there, well, again, that's just awkward for everybody involved. So it's not clear what would happen in that case. That hasn't happened yet, 
but it still could. The Kurds have been in negotiations with the Syrian government. So that could be a thing uh, that plays out over the next couple months. So that's something to keep an eye on. Um, it's good for the Kurds because they don't have to worry about a complete implosion, uh, like it kind of seemed like might be unfolding a couple weeks ago when uh, the announcement that the U.S. wasn't going to stay was first announced. Uh, but it's still not entirely clear just what the nature of this is. Uh, the U.S. still has not come out and made a solid long-term commitment to the Kurds. And just what U.S. policy is in Syria is still a mystery. I suspect even to a lot of people in the U.S. government, it uh, kind of feels a little off the cuff at this point, that it's sort of just however either the president himself feels or uh, is more being just dictated by events on the ground. But it doesn't really seem yet uh, to be any kind of serious, coherent strategic plan uh, for what the U.S. is going to do in eastern Syria. But at the very least, there's going to be troops there, so that's something. What you make of it is kind of in the eye of the beholder. Again, difficult to read the Trump administration, but that is the latest development there. Well, to the point of we're not sure what the U.S. policy is, if there isn't really much of one, then it's going to be tough yeah. to tell what it is because it isn't even there. It's mostly just talk. It's pretty far away. Ooh. That's a, an aspect of this whole era of geopolitics that's pretty interesting is you may have certain opinions about certain regions and things, but there is still the logistical problem of how do we get trucks there? Yeah, yeah, there is still that. Uh, there is still a physical, tangible element to geopolitical competition. You know, I try to focus more on that because, well, kind of like what you were saying earlier, talk is cheap, wars are expensive. You know, so it's more, it's more what you do. You know, to use the, to use another common phrase here in the U.S., uh, talk is cheap. So you know, you focus on the actions if you really want to try to judge someone, or in the case of international relations, uh, countries. So for all of the bluster from the U.S., you know, all of the noise about being sympathetic to the rebels and, you know, wanting to deal with Assad, wanting to contain Iranian influence. What the U.S. is actually doing and has actually been doing in Syria doesn't really correspond much with that. You know, for all of the criticism that the United States has gotten for, you know, propping up rebel groups and trying to overthrow the government in Syria, it actually hasn't really done that much. And what it has done has been mostly ineffective. And I don't think that had to be the case. I think they could have done more and just chose not to. And that gets into a whole conversation about the Obama administration and their policy on Syria. Uh, we can get into that if somebody wants, but I'll let it skip here. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's been a mess for a while and probably will continue to be so. Uh, not having a Syria policy is practically a tradition at this point in Washington. So anyway, that brings us to the Ukraine. So let's see here. Got to find the notes first. I'll try to move through this relatively quickly because there's a lot of notes here. Uh, I tried to write this up as 
to be as impartial as I could. So if anybody listening who's a Trump supporter or a Trump opponent thinks that something in here is biased or uh, is incorrect, please, please let me know in chat and I'll try to correct it. Um, again, I don't read chat while we do this, but I can give a correction uh, next time. Uh, so again, making my best effort here, so don't judge too harshly. <clears throat> okay, so quick background for those of you who maybe haven't been following this. Uh, there was a whistleblower uh, somewhere in the Trump administration. We still don't technically know exactly who it is. Uh, who filed a complaint that uh, Donald Trump and his administration uh, were attempting to pressure the Ukrainian government uh, into investigating Joe Biden. Again, uh, is running for president, is running for the Democratic Party's nomination for president, and uh, is, one of the leading <clears throat> is one of the leading candidates. Uh, so the allegation is that he wanted to pressure the Ukrainian government into investigating him uh, because his son sits on the board of a Ukrainian gas company, and allegedly uh, that was part of some corrupt deal on the part of the Bidens uh, to give uh, Joe Biden and his son uh, access, basically, to the company and somehow benefit from that. So there was an ostensible quid pro quo involved in which if the Ukrainian government did that, then in return, uh, president Zelensky, the president of Ukraine would be rewarded with a visit to, uh, well, a visit with Donald Trump and also would be given, uh, military aid, uh, in the form of funds. Now it's the military aid aspect that was particularly important. Uh, the allegation is that the Trump administration withheld military aid that had already been allocated by Congress uh, to the Ukraine. And allegedly, the Trump administration uh, held up this aid and applied the pressure, uh, as, as I just described it. And then later on, uh, well, the allegation is that if the Ukrainian government had played ball, had uh, acceded to the Trump administration's demands, then the aid would have been unlocked and sent to them. Uh, again, that is the nature of the alleged quid pro quo. So that's technically illegal. You're not really supposed to use your office for your own personal benefit or to attack a political rival uh, in that nature. So therein lies the controversy. Did the Trump administration uh, attempt a quid, quid pro quo uh, with the Ukrainian government that would have benefited the Trump administration politically. So that's a quick rough cut summary of how we how this all got started. Uh, earlier, way back in this past summer, uh, that is allegedly when the aid was initially held up. Again, it had already been allocated by Congress, so it was supposed to be sent uh, but there was a rider on that bill that stipulated that the president had the discretionary power uh, to stop the dispensation of aid if the Ukrainian government was not making sufficient progress uh, in terms of anti-corruption reforms. Obviously, the Ukrainian government has had a lot of problems with corruption over the past couple decades. And so Congress uh, wanted to give the president the ability uh, to use the aid as leverage to try to get the Ukrainian government uh, to continue to implement 
anti-corruption reforms of one sort or another. And it's up to the it's up to the president, according to this bill, to use his own judgment, or more accurately, the judgment of his advisors, uh, to determine whether or not sufficient progress is being made in that regard to justify the release of aid. Now, it had apparently been the impression of the Pentagon, that is to say the U.S. military, uh, that Ukraine was in the free and clear and that the aid would be unlocked and that sufficient progress had been made uh, to facilitate that. And so when that aid was actually held up then this past summer, there was apparently some surprise in that regard. This is what I read, and I think I think it's accurate. But again, if you have some criticism or countervailing evidence, please contribute it in chat. I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to admit I'm wrong on this. So please do contribute criticism. But from what I've read, this is the case. The Pentagon was surprised when the aid was held up uh, because they thought it was going to go through. So this is the first part of the evidence chronologically uh, as regarding whether or not the aid was held up. Apparently it was held up unexpectedly. Uh, so the, allegation, the allegations made also assert that it was around this time that Rudy Giuliani, uh, whom is in effect uh, Donald Trump's lawyer at this point, uh, started taking initiatives started taking initiative on uh, relations between the U.S. and the Ukraine. And Rick Perry, whom had been the head of the Department of Energy in the United States in the Trump administration, uh, has said publicly that Giuliani, Giuliani apparently uh, had argued at one point that Ukraine was somehow involved in the Steele dossier. So for those of you not familiar with the Steele dossier, uh, that was a set of information that had been uh, written up, a report written up, that had a lot of quote unquote dirt on Donald Trump. Um, one of the memorable things in the report is that supposedly Donald Trump had engaged in um, activities with Russian prostitutes in Moscow, shall we say. You can look those up on your own if you're curious. I remember that. Yep. But all of that and other dirt, as it were, ended up in the election and the allegation being made by Rudy Giuliani apparently, is that the Ukrainian government uh, helped engineer that report. Uh, well, besides arguing that the report is baseless, uh, he also would argue, it seems, that the Ukrainian government was involved in engineering it in the first place as a kind of favor uh, to the Clinton campaign in the expectation that they were going to win. <clears throat> and perhaps in the expectation that they were more favorable to the Ukrainian government. So... Uh, oh, part of Giuliani's argument also is that then, uh, if this is true, that the Ukrainian government was involved in the production of the Steele dossier, uh, then it was actually Russia then and not, that it was actually the Ukraine then and not Russia that interfered in the U.S. 2016 election. So, unclear uh, at this point if there was, uh, if this is a legit concern on the part of Rudy Giuliani or if he's just saying this uh, so he can use it as an election tactic to try to undermine uh, Donald Trump's political rivals. In other words, maybe he doesn't actually believe the Ukrainian government is involved, but maybe he just wants to say that it is in order to try to cast more uh, doubt on Joe Biden, given his connection to the Ukraine. So let's see, that was early summer, I want to say, this past summer, when this is all happening right here. Uh, so after that, there was a dubious uh, shakeup within the administration. 
there are allegations that the former ambassador to Ukraine was pushed out in favor of uh, Trump administration insiders. And uh, I, don't, I think his name was, no, it was a woman. I, I don't quite remember the woman's name. I didn't actually write down her notes, but she was the, uh, not administrator, ambassador, the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. And she was pushed out of her position and responsibility for managing U.S. relations with Ukraine was in effect handed over to a trifecta of Trump administration officials, one of whom was uh, Volker, who was a volunteer envoy for Ukraine relations. He didn't have an official position, but he was acting on the behest of Donald Trump, allegedly, uh, in order to pursue U.S. interests in the Ukraine. Uh, the second member of the trifecta was Rick Perry, Secretary of Energy. And then the third member is the now famous Mr. Sondland, whom had been the U.S. ambassador to the European Union. <clears throat> now, the Deputy, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Ukraine, George Kent, uh, says that this was orchestrated during a meeting this past summer held by Chief of Staff Mulvaney, Mulvaney being the Chief of Staff for the Trump administration. So allegedly, then, uh, this trifecta was organized during a meeting by Mulvaney this past summer. So the implication here is that uh, relations with Ukraine and the alleged quid pro quo, uh, that it was all sort of orchestrated and set up uh, earlier before the fact by this group of people, uh, either at the behest of Donald Trump or at least uh, on their own initiative as part of the Trump administration. So let's see, then we come to the organizing phone call. Uh, it was at this point, after this trifecta sort of takes control of the Ukraine policymaking, uh, Trump's people got in contact with President Zelensky's people to schedule a call between them. And allegedly, the Ukraine aid was ceased days before this call that was organized. Again, allegedly. You're going to hear the word allegedly a lot here because it's difficult to actually prove uh, any of this. And we can kind of touch on that a little bit later. So it was during this call that Trump made clear that he wanted Kiev to investigate Joe Biden and Hunter Biden, uh, as well as investigate the origins of the Mueller investigation. So this much is true. Uh, Donald Trump himself has released transcripts of the phone call. And uh, it seems to be that this was the case. You know, Joe, Joe Biden's name was mentioned. I believe that to be the case. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. And it certainly seems that there was a lot an attempt to indirectly try to prod the Ukrainian government into doing this and to announcing at least an investigation. So let's see, it was after the phone call then that the first whistleblower heard about it secondhand, not firsthand, and then filed a complaint. And it was that complaint that again sparked this whole process and inquiry. Uh, after that, a second whistleblower came out and alleged, whom had allegedly heard uh, the phone call firsthand and announced that he would be filing a complaint. I don't know if he ever actually followed up on that. Events kind of may have gotten ahead of that. Uh, but I don't recall a second whistleblower actually coming out since then. But allegedly there was a report that one had said that he would be filing a complaint. So six weeks later, after the phone call, uh, there was a controversial text between Ambassador to the EU Sondland and Taylor, uh, Ukraine, uh, U.S. rep in the Ukraine. <clears throat> so Taylor asked Sondland 
if uh, security assistance and White House visits were conditioned on investigations. Uh, to which Sondland responded, quote unquote, call me. And Taylor then said that it would be, quote, crazy to withhold security assistance to help with a political campaign, end quote. And so then Sondland responds, quote, Bill, I believe you are incorrect about President Trump's intentions. The president has been crystal clear. No quid pro quo of any kind. End quote. And Sondland also says the in the last text, denying a quid pro quo. Oh, sorry. Sondland says now that uh, that last text that he sent about uh, the president being crystal clear about no quid pro quo, he says that was actually dictated to him by Trump himself. Allegedly, Sondland contacted Trump after the uh, first text, asserting that a quid pro asserting that a quid pro quo was not legal and asked the president for advice, whereupon the president allegedly dictated that text. So Sondland, after sending that last text, sends another text saying that they should stop texting and talk over the phone. So that ended that particular exchange. Now, the reason that exchange is controversial, uh, obviously, is because it suggests uh, implicitly that there may have been some guilt there, that uh, there in fact was a quid pro quo and that Sondland was trying to cover it up or at least deny it. <clears throat> That's the allegation anyway. You can make of that what you will. Uh, Ukraine aid, which had been held up, was finally distributed again in September after having been withheld since early summer. Uh, but this was only, I believe, released after the allegations have been made. So that's something else to keep in mind. So Taylor comes up again here. Uh, Taylor, a Trump appointee, raised concerns a couple of times about a perceived quid pro quo. Uh, Taylor says that Sondland had explicitly told him that aid would be withheld pending an official announcement of an investigation into Burisma. Uh, again, Burisma is the Ukrainian gas company that has Joe Biden's son on its board of directors. Uh, Taylor then approached Josh Bolton, who was then still uh, a member of the Trump administration in the capacity of a national security advisor. Uh, Taylor approached Bolton about these concerns, and Bolton apparently advised him to write uh, to the Secretary of State Pompeo. Um, that message was sent, but Pompeo didn't respond, but did allegedly take the letter that was written to a meeting with Trump. Uh, so that letter was sent and received and presumably read. Uh, Taylor and Senator Ron Johnson, a Republican from Wisconsin, advised President Zelensky through normal diplomatic channels uh, to not get involved in bipartisan U.S. bickering. So apparently President Zelensky has been advised uh, by U.S. representatives uh, to try to distance himself from this whole issue. Sondland at first testified that he was not aware of any quid pro quo, so that's also worth mentioning. So most of this, what I'm describing here, as far as what Taylor's saying and the allegations made, a lot of that has come out uh, in the inquiry hearings that have been held recently. Uh, we'll get into that in a minute. So what was the response uh, to these allegations and the subsequent controversy? Uh, the GOP was initially planning on challenging the credibility of the whistleblower's account. Um, the whistleblower didn't hear uh, the phone call firsthand, at least the first whistleblower didn't. So that was something that they were going to home in on. 
Uh, they also wanted to frame the actions uh, as international cooperation against corruption and that this was not then technically illegal. So the idea there being that uh, the aid is associated with anti-corruption measures by on the part of the Ukrainian government. Uh, allegedly, uh, Joe Biden's son was on the Burisma board as part of some corrupt dealings. So then Donald Trump then can be said to be within his rights to demand that the Ukrainian government investigate said corruption as a condition for the aid. Now, we know that the GOP was strategizing like this because the GOP accidentally emailed their talking points to everybody. Whoops. Which was not part of the original plan, I imagine. And somewhat hilariously, I think it was Donald Trump who actually sent a subsequent email attempting to recall the first email, which is not how emails work. Uh, can we, <laughs> can we get that say. email back? I would like to undo this email. Well, but it were otherwise, as was, cat was out of the bag, so everybody kind of knew about Republican Party strategy on the issue, as it was. Uh, Trump then came out on live TV and admitted that he had asked Kiev to specifically investigate the Bidens. He also released edited transcript, unedited transcript of the phone call in which he, in which this was made explicit. He also came out later on live TV and asked not only Ukraine, but also China to investigate the Bidens. Uh, Hunter Biden had been in, is on the uh, board of directors for a Chinese investment bank, uh, which happened after uh, a Joe Bi an official U.S. government visit by, I think, Barack Obama, but also Joe Biden to China. So there are allegations that there was corruption involved in that. And so Trump came out and said, not only should Ukraine investigate the Bidens, but also China should. <clears throat> so at this point, it was pretty clear that Trump was definitely at least asking other governments to investigate Joe Biden. Uh, Trump, the Trump administration is now arguing that the phone call was meant to investigate Ukrainian election interference in 2016 elections. So that was a new admission. Uh, they say that Ukraine may have been working with the DNC. Also argues, uh, they've also argued that aid was not and never was withheld. And hence, there could not have been a quid pro quo. Now, that's why I was mentioning at the very start that aid seems to have been shut down, not stopped, but withheld early in the summer. So that's an important countervailing point here to this statement. <clears throat> so the White House Chief of Staff Mulvaney during a press conference seemingly admitted that the Trump administration was attempting a quid pro quo in Ukraine policy. Um, there was a reporter asking about allegations that the administration was pushing the Ukraine to investigate uh, the Clinton email server uh, that was allegedly in the Ukraine uh, in exchange for aid. And the reporter then argued that Mulvaney's answer to that question implicitly suggested a quid pro quo, to which Mulvaney responded, quote, we do that all the time with foreign policy, get over it, there is going to be political influence in foreign policy, end quote. He also argued that there will always be politics in foreign oh, that's what I just said. Uh, so that seemed like an admission to a quid pro quo. Later on, they walked that back. Uh, so not really convincing proof of it, uh, but it didn't look terribly good at the time. And it was basically kind of revealed that the administration didn't really have a solid message on this, or at least wasn't doing a good, jo doing a good job of staying on message of it. 
the administration, for its part, said that the media twisted his words around and that requesting an investigation was legit, which was, I imagine, what he originally meant to say. <clears throat> so let's see, after, Taylor testimony, after Taylor's testimony uh, before the House inquiry, uh, the GOP started backing off of the argument that uh, there was a presence, that there was no presence of quid pro quo. Uh, now they're more focusing on procedural details of the impeachment inquiry. Um, there also there is an impeachment inquiry at this point. The uh, House of Representatives in the U.S. started it up. This is not um, an impeachment, nor is it the first step towards an impeachment. This is just asking questions and investigating, or in order to determine whether or not there should be a vote on whether to start impeachment. Okay. So that said. Uh, some of the Republican Party's strategy going forward, uh, as far as debating procedural details of the impeachment inquiry, they say that the inquiry should have been brought to a vote by the full House and not just the House committee. Uh, Constitution doesn't actually stipulate the requirements for just an inquiry. Um, there's more requirements for an actual impeachment uh, in order to hold a vote for that. Uh, but as far as an impeachment inquiry, just asking questions about whether or not there should be an impeachment, the Constitution doesn't really outline how that should be done. And so actual impeachment, for its part, would require a full House vote. But an inquiry, it doesn't seem like there's any legal requirement there for there to be a House vote. So it seems here that uh, the Republican Party is trying to exploit that hole in the Constitution to try to paint uh, the inquiry as somehow unconstitutional uh, they're also saying the that the GOP is saying that the inquiry depositions are being held in secret uh, characterizing it as a quote-unquote star chamber uh, there at one point 30 some GOP house members even interrupted a deposition in progress uh, in protest of the alleged secrecy now this is also a little bit misleading because uh, apparently uh, it's normal for depositions to be closed to the public to ensure classified information is not revealed to the public and several GOP members sit on the relevant committees uh, during these depositions uh, and in fact 12 of those who were among the 30 protesters were actually committee members who got to participate in the depositions so that kind of felt a little more like a political stunt than a genuine protest it is true that the depositions are in secret and that the process is relatively hush-hush. But that said, it's still only an inquiry right now, so a lot of the rules are mostly informal anyway. <clears throat> so let's see, moving on then. Uh, the impeachment inquiry itself, the ambassador to the EU, Mr. Sondland, set up... Oh, this is a little old. He was set to be questioned. He has since been questioned. Uh, questioned on the text messages to senior diplomats in the EU... Uh, yada yada yada. Yeah, we already covered all that. Uh, they also are gonna. They also got former Bolton aide Fiona Hill, uh, who said that Bolton believed Giuliani was up to something at one point. Bolton suspected something afoot regarding Ukraine, and didn't want to be a part of it. He said it was some kind of drug deal. He was Giuliani was working up, quote unquote. Uh, Trump apparently suggested phone call was Perry's idea. Oh. Donald Trump himself suggested that uh, the phone call with Zelensky was Rick Perry's idea. 
And uh, after that, Rick Perry resigned as Secretary of Energy, and uh, to which the House impeachment inquiry responded by subpoena. I'm going to try to do this right. Subpoenaing. Is that it? I don't know if there's a good way to go about it. <laughs> okay. Uh, subpoena Rick Perry. That was their response. How do you verb that noun? Does anybody know? They served a subpoena. They delivered. They sent it. Subpoena is how the word is spelled. Subpoena is how it's pronounced. Subpoena, yeah. Well, let us know in chat. Um, <laughs> a related story here that's kind of unfolding in parallel. Uh, two businessmen, both Ukrainians with U.S. citizenship, were arrested as part of an investigation into campaign finance violations. Uh, Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman. Allegedly, they conspired to funnel foreign money into the Trump campaign. Uh, they've apparently met several times before with Rudy Giuliani and apparently been pushing allegations uh, regarding Joe Biden's alleged corruption in the Ukraine. So that's kind of an unfolding story happening separate, but it sort of ties in as well. Uh, so we'll see what kind of happens with that. Uh, some clarification, the original Ukrainian investigation into Burisma uh, was not originally looking into the Bidens. The original investigation uh, by Ukraine uh, was meant to investigate the oligarch owners of Burisma. And Biden and other Western leaders wanted the prosecutor removed, not because he wasn't investigating Joe Biden, but uh, because the prosecutor was dragging his feet and not taking the prosecution seriously, which is pretty normal for Ukraine. Uh, if you're an oligarch or a powerful political figure, it's not unusual uh, to put pressure on prosecutors to look the other way or to kind of not take seriously an investigation so that the result of the investigation is favorable to the oligarch in question. So the pressure being brought to bear was meant to try to push the prosecutor out, not because he was not investigate, well, not because he was investigating, but because he wasn't investigating, at least not sufficiently to the liking of anti-corruption campaigners inside and outside of Ukraine. So some final notes then. This is just a lot of facts, I know. It's just kind of an info dump. But for those of you who maybe haven't been following it, hopefully this is some useful information. Uh, so some final notes here. My general reading is that it seems like Rudy Giuliani is trying to do some sort of traditional Washington-style dirty tricks uh, to help Donald Trump with the 2020 election, but kind of can't. <laughs> it's not, it kind of seems like he doesn't really know how. You know, I mean, rule one of dirty tricks in politics, don't get caught. That's that's kind of the first priority. And it kind of feels like he's waffled that a little bit. Uh, my impression, I kind of suspect that the Trump administration wants to put something like the Russiagate investigation on Joe Biden. Just kind of have that as an albatross around his political neck. And... Uh, generating that by having the Ukrainian government announce an investigation so that that could be cited in the 2020 campaign as evidence of Biden corruption. Um, but as is, again, Rudy Giuliani kind of waffled it, and it seems instead that the Trump administration ended up with another scandal instead. <clears throat> so the administration also seems to be having some trouble coordinating a response. Now that it has become a scandal, 
I kind of feel like they're struggling to really mount a coherent response. And this has kind of been a running problem with the Trump administration. You know, the Trump administration seems to have difficulty organizing coherent administration-wide responses, staying on message, implementing uh, a single coherent strategy over long periods of time. Those all seem to be things they kind of struggle with. So there seems to be a lack of coordination there amongst officials. There's resignations amongst certain officials, Rick Perry being the one I pointed out earlier. Um, it doesn't feel like then that there's maybe enough uh, people in the administration who are willing to throw themselves under the bus for the administration to kind of result in a, an Oliver North scenario. I don't know how many people remember him, but uh, way back in the 80s, there was a big scandal called the Iran-Contra scandal. And as part of that, there were allegations that President Reagan had ordered the CIA to sell weapons to Iran during the Iran-Iraq war and to use the funds from that to fund uh, Contra rebels in Nicaragua during Nicaragua's civil war. All of which was very illegal because Congress had specifically passed, uh, I don't want to call it a bill, but they had specifically forbidden the Reagan administration from funding the Contra rebels in Nicaragua. So this was basically a way of getting around Congress, which they weren't supposed to do. So the question was, did Reagan know about it? Did he order this to happen? And if so, that would be very illegal and potentially impeachable. So whether or not Reagan knew about it was never established. But what was established is that a guy named Oliver North, an officer in uh, the Reagan administration, did know about it and was involved. And he ended up being the fall guy. Now, Oliver North never said, uh, I think he did say that Ronald Reagan didn't know about it, but he didn't really have, you know, that's kind of impossible to prove. So the suspicion is that Oliver North kind of threw himself under the bus on behalf of Ronald Reagan. Um, whether he knew about it or not, he went out of his way to try to protect the president. Uh, and so Oliver North ended up being the shield for uh, the Reagan administration in that case. And he did do some jail time for that, I think. But regardless, uh, it's not really clear how many people in the Trump administration would necessarily be willing to do to that for Trump. You know, whether he did something illegal or not, uh, you could protect the president by trying to take the blame. And I kind of don't get the impression there's a lot of takers at this point to do that. Yeah, Let's well, see. You one... need either one of two things. You need the promise of some great reward after you take the fall for someone or you just have that much loyalty because of all the things they've done for you. Yeah. Which that kind of loyalty is really hard to build. I think you have to have a certain kind of a certain type of charisma and a whole lot of it. Yeah. And Donald Trump has charisma, but from what I've seen of them, he seems to struggle with personnel management. You know, personal relationships don't really seem to be his forte. And that's going to be a problem for him because in order to run an administration, you really need to have people you can trust and you really need to be able to coordinate those people between each other. And that I don't really get the impression that's what's happening. That seems to be a problem. And to be fair, there's a lot of pressure being brought to bear on people who are peripheral to Donald Trump uh, by opposition. You know, the investigations during the whole Russiagate thing, the investigations now as part of the Ukraine uh, other unrelated investigations that resulted in the arrests uh, of people involved in the 2016 Trump campaign. All of that really represents a lot of pressure for people who are in the administration with Trump 
who are being asked to do maybe not illegal things, but maybe things that are borderline illegal, shady political bullshit, basically, of the sort that you might expect from any administration. Uh, a lot of those people have been taking the fall. A lot of those people have been investigated, found out, and have gone to jail. And so it kind of feels like if you're going to play ball with Donald Trump, there's a very good chance that you're going to end up paying for it, which is not necessarily something that would have happened in previous administrations. You know, the closest corollary is probably the Nixon administration. And in the Nixon administration, uh, obviously they were in involved in some dirty political bullshit, that being Watergate. Uh, but they had a lot of coherence uh, within the administration that allowed them to kind of deflect uh, criticism and to kind of get away with it for a while. You know, eventually in the investigations and pressure grew to be too much, but uh, they were able to kind of fight that for a long time. And part of that involved the people involved who got caught, the two people uh, who were found out to have been the ones who broke into the Watergate Hotel and arrested. Uh, they went out of their way to try to protect the president. That level of loyalty and administrative you know, coherence, that's going to be pretty hard, I think, for the Trump administration to do. Because unlike Nixon, uh, Nixon didn't have Democrat, the Democratic Party, if not also sympathetic Republicans, uh, constantly basically looking for things uh, that, are, that people were doing wrong. And to be fair, the Trump administration has given them lots of ammunition to work with to do that. Uh, but the result of being constantly investigated is that you're constantly finding people who are doing things that they shouldn't be doing. Uh, some of that is legit. You know, there's a lot of laws about campaign finance rules. When it's easy to break them. So, you know, you kind of have to really be able to stay on that. But a certain amount of leeway is generally extended in that regard. Uh, but in Trump's case, it seems like he's asking people to do things that are more on the illegal side of the borderline illegal spectrum. And in that case, you really have to question whether or not you, as the guy being asked to do that, are going to end up paying the piper for him. And whether or not you want to get punished on the part of the president for doing something that probably isn't going to be planned very well and will probably blow up in everybody's face. Probably not, I would guess, at least for most people. So we'll see how that dynamic plays out. That could be uh, a big problem for the Trump administration. It's no surprise that uh, Democrats have really focused on that as a big part of their strategy for uh, approaching and dealing with the Trump administration. The Trump administration, you know, for whatever it's done right, uh, it has left itself very vulnerable to that mode of attack uh, by dint of not being sufficiently uh, organized. You know, by having all of these people running around and doing things that they shouldn't be doing and getting caught and doing them in stupid ways and you know just the lack of planning makes it easy for people to find reasons to investigate and then to find people who did wrongdoing and whatnot. So that's, I think that's enough. <laughs> I think that's, that's pretty much all I had on it. So that's, again, that's not, a flowing story that kind of reveals it organically. That's, again, a lot of information. Um, but that, I wanted to kind of give that, I wanted to provide that to people who maybe haven't been, haven't been following things closely. That's more or less where things are uh, now as they've unfolded over the past month and change.
So let's see. <clears throat> what else did we have here? There's a nice viewer who just described this as the most soothing political discussion on the internet. <laughs> well, thank you. We do try. We do try. So let's see. Would you like to talk about Bolivia? Hell yeah, dude. Are you familiar with the uh, events there recently? Hell no, dude. <laughs> That's what you're here for. <laughs> no problem. No problem. So it might help to describe Bolivia a little bit. I don't know how familiar most people are with Bolivia. Uh, it's a developing country landlocked in the middle of South America. That's the quick and dirty explanation. Um, it's one of the poorer countries in Latin America, uh, partly because it is very mountainous. You know, the western half of the country is basically the Andes Mountains. Uh, the eastern half of the country is split into thirds. Um, one third of it is wetlands, not really great for settlement, so not a lot of people live there. Uh, one third of it is uh, Gran Chaco, I think which is sort of this semi-arid region in the southeast of the country. Not a lot of settlement there either. Land isn't very fertile. And the middle third of the eastern half of the country, that's the sweet spot. That's uh, where a lot of the fertile land is, and there's a lot of agricultural activity there. Now, even though, there's, even though that land is fertile and there's a lot of people who live there, most of the population actually lives in the mountains. And there's various you know, valleys and lakes and whatnot that kind of facilitate that demography. That's a little bit unusual, but they make it work. Uh, Bolivia was the location of one of the wealthiest mines in Latin America. Uh, at least that was part of the Spanish Empire. It was called Potosi, I think. A huge silver mine, and a, it produced an immense amount of silver uh, that paid for the Spanish Empire's expenses in Europe, uh, as well as financing a lot of uh, the European economy in general. Specie was a little hard to come by. We could talk about specie if somebody wants fun one. That's more economics. Uh, but Bolivia wasn't like a main part of the Spanish Empire. You know, Peru was the principal administrative center for uh, that part of this, that part of South America, that region. In fact, Bolivia used to be called Upper Peru, if I'm remembering correctly. It was technically part of uh, the Peruvian province. Uh, Actually, they didn't call them provinces. I guess it would have been vice royalty of Peru or something to that effect. So Bolivia was kind of a sideshow, but it was an important sideshow because of the Potosi mines. Uh, later on, Bolivia was broken off, and I think it was actually made part of the vice royalty of Rio de la Plata, basically Argentina, for a while. And eventually, in the early 1800s, it became independent, uh, whereupon it became... Well, it was still basically just too poor to really do too much. Uh, there was It played a significant role in the Latin American Wars of Independence uh, in the early 1800s, but that after that, I don't know as much of the history, and I don't think it did too much uh, in the region. I think it mostly kept to itself for a while. And then eventually, uh, well, what happened was, in the early 20th century, the mines gave out. You know, all Even after independence, uh, mining was the principal economic activity. I think tin was one of the biggest exports, but don't quote me on that. 
but what happened then, though, is that uh, the principal mines in the country became expended. Uh, there was still some mining activity, but the principal exports kind of fell off. And that had a very deleterious effect on the Bolivian economy. So there was a long period of political unrest and economic instability as a result afterwards. And later on, uh, the Bolivian government got some financial aid, you know, got uh, IMF money and uh, as well as World Bank money. And things stabilized for a while in the mid-20th century. And Bolivia tried to do what pretty much everybody in Latin America was doing, which was to uh, use import substitution to try to develop industry within Bolivia without having to depend on an export-oriented model. And that worked for a while until it didn't, which was in the 1980s. The 1980s saw a huge cascading series of debt crises throughout Latin America. Uh, a lot of countries in Latin America had built up massive amounts of debt while they tried to uh, borrow the money they needed to import a lot of capital that was required uh, for their economic development. You know, they uh, wanted to develop industries within their own countries, but uh, they invariably had to import some equipment, resources, you know, certainly oil, for example. And the result is that that debt ran up over time. Uh, it wouldn't have been as bad if the industries that they were spending the money on had become productive and uh, started generating a lot of revenue, but in a lot of cases they became corrupted, captured by special interests. Well, well they were the special interests. Uh, and so rather than spending money wisely and improving productivity, a lot of the money ended up getting embezzled or funneled into political corruption of one sort or another, etc. So the result was debt crises, and Bolivia had one of the worst. Uh, these days, when you think of hyperinflation, you probably think of Zimbabwe. They're sort of the poster child in the modern era for hyperinflation. But back in the day, in the 1980s, uh, that poster child was Bolivia. They had massive hyperinflation. And Bolivia became an economic basket case, one of the, the preeminent example thereof at the time. Uh, eventually, things settled down. Uh, but Bolivia's economy hasn't ever really taken off particularly well. Uh, at least until relatively recently. And what happened was the rise of China. Uh, China's economy took off, and in turn there was a commodities boom and, a boom. and of course Bolivia specializes in the export of commodities. And so Bolivia's economy finally started to recover and start to improve, show significant gains in the, I want to say the aughts. It's more when that happened. You know, From that period between 2000 up until 2008, thereabouts, Excuse me. And it was during this period uh, that Bolivian politics had a major revolution. Well, I, mean, I don't mean like a violent revolution, but there was a big change. And that was that uh, Mora Evo Morales came to power. And he was a Chavista-style politician. Uh, he was a leftist. He believed that the government should be, do more to help people, should spend more on social programs, should provide more services, etc., and this was an enormously popular position uh, in, Lat in Bolivia uh, because most of the population is actually Native American. And, uh, you know, some mixing, you know, mestizo populations, but uh, Bolivia has a huge chunk of its population comprised of uh, authentic, you know, full-blooded Native Americans. And uh, 
most of them, I think, still speak Native American languages. Uh, I think Americ is one of the big ones. And then Quechua is the other one. Should, that's off the top of my head, so that's probably wrong. But uh, the point is that Bolivia has a large Native American population that has historically been disenfranchised. Uh, most of the power has historically resided within Bolivia in a handful of families who owned most of the mines and major assets. And uh, they, in turn, have also controlled the government. And that's been the case, but then Evo Morales comes along and makes noise about actually doing something for the common people, the working people, as well as recognizing uh, the Native American culture, uh, which had kind of been subjugated, or at least subordinated, by uh, mainstream Spanish culture, uh, which was dominant in the major cities. So Evo Morales not only wanted to give government more government support to people, he also wanted... He also represented a kind of cultural revolution, you know, a, a embrace of Native American culture that had not happened up to. Then. So he won election and he implemented uh, a lot of the, these kinds of policies and they made him very popular. <clears throat> and he has a lot of money to work with, again, because of that commodities. Book. So just to kind of tie that together. Now, everything went pretty well. Uh, in Bolivia, unlike, say, Venezuela, where they implemented price fixing and crashed the economy, Morales actually did relatively decent. You know, he didn't get too ambitious with the social spending. Um, obviously, there's a lot of people in, in Bolivia who didn't like it, conservatives and whatnot, uh, but for the most part, relatively well managed. Now, the problem came later on when he decided that he didn't want to leave office. He wanted to run for a third term which was not allowed by the Constitution. Now, what happened was the Constitutional Court actually ruled that he could not do that, that he could not run for a third term, that it would be unconstitutional. So he went to court and filed a case saying that term limits, uh, as stipulated in the Bolivian Constitution, violated his human rights. It's pretty funny. And he won that case. What? <laughs> the Constitutional Court ruled in his favor that, yes, term limits violated Evo Morales' human rights. What? And Earth? thus they were scrapped from the Constitution. Dude, do you know what I just realized? What's that? That my human rights have been violated this whole time that I haven't gotten a Lamborghini. <laughs> Can you believe people not giving me a Lamborghini? Wow, you should you should write Amnesty International. That's a real travesty. I know. I'm already working on it. Oh, they better. <clears throat> so it's worth mentioning here that the Constitutional Court was filled with people who, oh, by the way, had been appointed by Evo Morales. So perhaps it's not that surprising. So he ran for a third term and won. Uh, so then that brings us up to the recent election. Uh, after serving in his third term, he wanted to serve in a fourth. And that was very controversial because a lot of people started to suspect, suspect, even some people who supported him, that maybe he wasn't really about democracy. Maybe he was just about power. 
obviously, he'd done a lot of good things that a lot of people liked, but the trouble was that he didn't really seem to be respecting the spirit of uh, the process, the spirit of a democratic culture. You know, if you want to do good things while in office, great, but term limits are there for a reason. Uh, that's meant to deflect people from just staying in office forever and trying to use the office for their own benefit. Debatable whether or not he'd been doing that up to that point, but certainly after uh, pushing the constitutional court to allow him uh, a third term and, in effect, also a fourth term, there were real questions about whether or not Morales was slowly becoming more and more despotic, that maybe he was shifting in an authoritarian direction and that maybe in the long run, if, he'd be, if he were to be reelected, maybe Bolivia would end up like Venezuela, at least politically, not necessarily economically. <clears throat> so what happened in the election that was held uh, this past month, I think it was, uh, Morales, well, let me stipulate this rule. Uh, there's an electoral rule in Bolivia that uh, a presidential candidate needs to beat the runner-off by at least 10 percentage points. Uh, I should say, needs to beat the runner-up, needs to beat the main opposition by at least 10 percentage points in order to avoid a runoff. Uh, so what happened then is that the Supreme Electoral Tribunal uh, counts these votes. They're the ones responsible for basically running the election, and they're supposed to be impartial. Uh, and the early returns as the election unfolded, as the you know, election results were being reported, suggested that a runoff was likely. That the main opposition candidate was not going to win. It looked like Morales had the majority but the margin was below 10 percentage points, so it looked like there was going to be a runoff. So then what happened is that the Supreme Electoral Tribunal uh, stopped reporting results, and it did so pretty suddenly, and it did so for about 24 hours. And when they started up again, they announced that Morales had actually won by more than 10 percentage points. Now, technically, that's possible. There's no reason that there can't have been a change in the trend and that actually, yes, uh, the gap was that big. But the thing that put people off was the fact that they stopped reporting and didn't report for 24 hours. So opponents alleged fraud and started protesting. And in a big way. <laughs> uh, protesters seized two state-owned TV broadcasters and stopped them broadcasting. Uh, and a local pro-Morales mayor was beaten, shaved, and dragged through the street. Now, interestingly, uh, despite being in control of the government, uh, Morales was not able to stop the police from turning on him. They basically uh, joined the protesters. And then the head of the army came out and pushed Morales to resign in order to restore peace and order. Uh, the head of the army also announced that he would, quote-unquote, neutralize any group that attacked the protesters. So it seems as though Morales did not have a particularly firm gri grip on power. Uh, the police and the military are pretty key institutions for any would-be authoritarian. So he did not have their support, and so he ended up resigning. Uh, although that didn't happen until a little bit later. Um, let me get to this first. The Organization of American States uh, did an audit of the election, and they did find evidence of fraud, uh, including physical records with alterations and forged signatures, as well as evidence of wide-scale data manipulation. Uh, that's what their report said anyway. So Morales then came out and said that there would be a new election, though he was a little sketchy on the details. 
And importantly, he admitted that there would be fraud. Excuse me. It's a little late over here. Uh, so Morales then, that's when Morales resigned, basically. Pressure grew. He resigned and he fled to Mexico. Um, interestingly, the vice president and the heads of the Senate, well, that is to say the speakers of the Senate and the House also all resigned and went to Mexico. So the chain of succession being what it was, um, after Morales resigned, it should have been the vice president who became president, but he resigned. So then it should have been the head of the House or the Senate. They both resigned. So it ended up falling instead to the leader of the opposition. So the new president of Bolivia is opposition leader Giannine Inez. Now, I have no idea why they did that. They had to have known that if they all resigned like that, the opposition leader would become president. Uh, excuse me again. Maybe they just assumed that they had lost all support from uh, the administrative state, you know, the military and the police, and that they just had no choice, basically. And they've since come out and said that uh, it was a coup, basically, a de facto coup. <clears throat> but that's an allegation, and it's not clear whether or not that's true. It could be that they're just doing this as a political stunt to try to fire up their base and mobilize them for the upcoming election, which has been announced. So Morales... Uh, boycotted the Senate vote to approve Inez. They did that in part to try to deny them a quorum. Uh, but then the Supreme Court got involved and said that actually uh, Congress's participation is not required in a case where the president has vacated, where the presidency is vacant. Uh, in that case, the chain of succession can play out without Congress uh, participating and giving it's okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Inez was able to become president, even though Congress didn't have a quorum. Um, obviously, Morales' supporters don't like that, but uh, not much they can do at this point. Pro-Morales protests have now started up, so that's the newest thing. Um, the opposition has the presidency. They've announced new elections, uh, but Morales' supporters are all incensed. They think that it's a coup and that they've been denied uh, their opportunity to put their guy back in power. Um, Morales' opponents, including some people who had previously supported him, argue that he's uh, just trying to enscone himself in power without honoring uh, democratic norms. You know, that being that you just can't stay in power forever, that you have to hand over the reins. And they argue that there's nothing he's done that can't also be done by another member of the party. So they don't particularly understand why it has to be Morales specifically who becomes president again. So some notes here. Uh, it seems like Morales didn't really plan very well. You know, uh, if you're going, you know, regardless of what you think of Morales, um, it makes sense for him to put somebody in charge of the military and police and to make sure those institutions are thoroughly under his control. And somehow that either didn't happen in the first place or the guy he appointed who he expected to be loyal to him was not loyal. I don't know enough about Bolivian politics to know which it was, but Clearly, that's where the critical failure here was. Uh, most presidents who have a thorough lock on police and the military aren't going to resign that easily. Uh, but it seems like that fell through for him here. 
Uh, let's see. So not clear what Morales' strategy is going to be going forward. Uh, it kind of seems like he probably would have won the election anyway, even if they'd had a, the runoff election. Probably he would have won, I would guess. Sorry. So it's not really clear what uh, Morales would have gained uh, by rigging the vote to avoid a runoff. It could be if he did rig the vote uh, to avoid the runoff that he just didn't want to chance it. Uh, that's always possible. But it also could just be that uh, the whole thing is sort of contrived, that actually there was no vote rigging and that the opposition is just taking the opportunity to hit to the streets because the government did something suspicious and are trying to leverage that into a new election. Uh, it could well be that when the new election happens that uh, Morales, or at least his party, wins, uh, in which case everything kind of goes back to status quo, but maybe without Morales. Uh, but it could be, though, that he just comes back and wins the presidency outright. You know, the whole thing could have been for nothing. The whole thing is just very ambiguous at this point as to just what direction it's going to go. But uh, that's where the drama is right now. You know, who's going to win the new election? Is the opposition government going to run a fair election? Is Morales going to run again and become president again? Uh, these are all pretty open questions right now. Uh, if you're somebody living in Bolivia right now, the big question for you is how bad the protests are going to get. The anti-Morales protests were pretty virulent, and now the pro-Morales protests are starting up. Uh, so that could go in a pretty bad direction pretty quick. Uh, the whole thing just kind of illustrates the importance of everybody understanding and honoring democratic norms. Um, even if you, even if everybody's following the rules as they are, uh, it's important that everybody understand that it's key to stability, uh, to honor election results, to have term limits, uh, you know, etc. All of these are meant to build confidence amongst uh, all of the different factions involved in politics. You know, it's important to build that trust between groups that are otherwise in competition. Well, if you have zero faith in institutions, then no one can get anything done. Yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, the trouble with societies like Bolivia's is that there's not a lot of trust in the government. That's understandable, given how authoritarian Bolivia's government has been traditionally and how badly it's treated its native population over time. So, you know, mistrust is to be expected in such a case. Uh, but if a democracy and a democratic political culture is to be built in Bolivia, that's going to have to change at some point. And right now it seems like, uh, for one, on the right, there's an immense mistrust of Morales and uh, you know his ability to run the government honestly. And then in contrast, uh, the traditionally marginalized peoples of Bolivia, uh, whom just do not trust uh, the opposition parties, whom they see as being rep representing the traditional elites, who they had to fight for so long and hard to kind of remove and overcome in order to get their guy, their Morales, uh, into power and to get policies implemented that favor and help them, uh, which, again, is still pretty novel in Bolivia. That's still a pretty new thing. So everybody's mistrustful, everybody's skeptical, and everybody's very angry. And the result is mass protests. Um, hopefully it doesn't result in... Uh, a violent set of protests or a violent attempt to overthrow the government. Hopefully everybody just waits for the elections and those pan out uh, normally. 
But uh, given how tense things are, things could spiral out of control pretty quickly. It just kind of depends on, partly on Evo Morales, since he kind of has a lot of influence over the crowds there uh, who are on his side anyway. So, you know, if he plays ball and kind of sits on the sidelines or maybe just runs in the election when it happens rather than trying to fire up his supporters to try to maintain maximum pressure, that would probably be for the best. But it could be that he doesn't think that there's going to be an honest election. It could be that he thinks the opposition is going to try to seize power, in which case it makes sense for him to try to mobilize his supporters uh, as much as possible to try to pressure the government as much as possible into either allowing an honest election or into allowing him back into the presidency or perhaps some other negotiated settlement. So we'll see. That's where it's at right now. And here is Bolivia in 20 minutes or less. So that might be... Did we have any more questions? I don't think so. So that might be a decent place to stop. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, you hauled for three hours, my dude. Okay. It's, I might... You know, I was thinking of going longer, but I can't stop yawning, it seems. so. <laughs> That's probably a sign I need to go to bed. <laughs> I can't imagine it's terribly exciting to listen to. Well, you've been getting a lot of good feedback during the session today. Oh, cool. We did get yeah, some... always appreciated. Some fun uh, conversations about some conspiracy theories. Surprisingly, about an hour before you made that joke. <laughs> Even before. Yeah. yeah, well, I think a lot of the political discussion oftentimes baits out people who have those kinds of ideas, where it's a, one of those, mm -hmm. this is my moment kind of things. Because <laughs> yeah. if it's just the gameplay, then a lot of times my content is focused on what happened in the last match, what's happening in this match, like coaching and things like that, which eh, it's not quite as relevant. But when you say something related to outer space and there's someone who doesn't believe that we've been to space, then, well, that's their moment. Well, it sounds like the internet. Yeah. That's to be expected. It's a vibrant and interesting location. Oh, yeah. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on, Mr. Agent Smith. Fuzzy Cord for handling the questions and the chat for providing so many lovely questions and interaction and for tuning in and listening. Yeah, thank you all very much. Much appreciated. And thank you for having me again. Yep. Good to be back on it. Take care of yourself, Mr. Agent Smith. Yep. You too. GG.